0: Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Solomarillion Film Project, the second of 2017, and the first of the... uh, uh, fatherhood era of Dave Kale <laughs> one of your right. co-hosts i'm back after a uh, after an, a brief absence due to uh, let's call it paternity leave but right. you know more aptly just described as the chaos of having a, <laughs> uh, a small human being introduced into my family um, so but i'm really really excited to be back back in the saddle podcasting and uh, on all that stuff um, you know, we gotta, we got to keep this thing rolling so that it will still be alive in you know 15 to 20 years when our kids want to start That's right. We've got to have something
1: to hand off to your son here, so absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, need it.
0: we need a legacy. have got to have a legacy. But anyway, I am your host, Dave Kale. I am back, uh, and hopefully we'll be around um, uh, henceforth. Uh, I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and imminently joined, hopefully, by the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert. But uh, she seems to have briefly disappeared. Yes, the we're moment. having
1: some technical difficulties, but yes, hopefully, yes. imminently rejoined uh, by that. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. Thanks very much. So this week we are uh, I, um, we're going to be talking about the frame. Uh, we have some. It's this is sort of like an intermediary episode between the. Uh, the, you know, the, the primary discussion of the season and the post-production phase, uh, the primary production of the, uh, uh, you know, of the you know, we finished discussing season uh, uh, episode 13 last time, but we still have some kinds of loose ends. So what we're dedicating this episode, you know, this session to is discussing two of the, the sort of the major subplots of of the season two production that is first the Arwen frame, which we've gotten away from a while back. And uh, then second is the bad guy subplot. What's going on with, with Sauron uh, particularly uh, back in middle earth. And um, I, the, the, the the main thing I want to emphasize about that is th- um, about both of them. Really. I don't want um, to get, too distracted with you know we're not our job is not script writing you know our job is not going we're, we're, we're not going to block this out episode by episode i want to make sure that we're kind of thinking about the overall the overall principles and you know it's and and i think it's actually kind of fun to come back and you know i'm not sure i would do this again you know we've kind of we kind of we kind of left the frame and, and haven't been talking about it and are now coming back to it at the end. Um, I don't think I would plan to do it this way again. But there's a kind of advantage to it as well, because now having having seen the entire shape of season two, um, revisiting the whole frame concept from that perspective and sort of now being able to see more clearly when we uh, when we talked about the frame at the beginning of the season you know we had some thematic ideas for it um and now we can kind of i think see a little bit more accurately how those would fit now that we kind of know where it's going to be where season two itself is going to be sort of ending up um uh, now, b- before we start, um, uh, Nick has a very sensible question. Um, so Nick is asking about uh, uh, the, the, the climax of episode 13. What do we see as the climax of episode 13? Um, and it's one of those things, it's um, where I don't think the primary, t- I mean, obviously the major tragic action of episode 13 is the death of the trees, Right. I mean, that's the the big, horrible moment, um, which is obviously the most sensational moment uh, in episode 13. Um, But I would say clearly the most important moment, the 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 turning point, the culmination of the season is Feanor's decision to not give up the Silmarils—you know that—that that moment where 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 Feanor makes the choice, which sets his course for the rest of his too brief life. Um, is, is is the moment. I mean as we were discussing last time, it's about it's about fall, right? I mean season 2 ultimately, uh you know, it, especially the second half of season 2 is about is about it's, it's about the unrest of the Noldor and how the Noldor are falling from what they had. It's about Fëanor's fall in particular, it's about Melkor's fall. Um and that's really that's really the moment. Um and in a sense I think the fall of Feanor seems to me in episode 13. And as I was saying last time, we get both of these things, right? We get the, the moment where everything changes for, uh, uh, for Feanor. And we get the moment where everything changes for Melkor. And those are the, uh, the renaming of Melkor into Morgoth by, by Feanor is the sort of the outward signal of this like new phase in Morgoth's in, in now Morgoth's career. Um, that moment with uh, with Ungoliant and the um, the you know the burning of his hand by the Silmarils and everything this is this is this is a big moment uh, for Melkor and a big stage in Melkor's fall. Um, and uh, Maria, I can agree with you that in some ways the emotional climax of the episode may be the discovery of the death of Finway. I, but I'm not sure, Maria in some ways I kind of feel like if the death of Finway feels like the emotional climax of the scene, I'm not sure I wouldn't see that as a failure. Um, that is, we're going to have three bodies on stage, right? Three bodies on screen in episode 13, Finway's body and the two trees. And if we're mourning in the end for Finway, more than we're mourning for the trees, I feel like we failed. Um, Because, I mean, seriously, if what we're trying to do in some ways is portray the, you know, the heart of Tolkien's Silmarillion here on screen, we've got to get people, people need to be weeping over the death of the trees. That's so central to, I mean, the the loss of the trees and how important that is if we, if we can't make people feel that, if we can't make people feel the significance of the death of the trees, um, then I don't, you know, then, then again, I I feel like we've, we've, we failed if we're going for what is essentially, um, I almost call it a merely human drama. Uh, um, well, seriously, like if in our minds, the death of somebody's dad, like watching somebody else mourn the death of his father is a like hits us way, way harder than the than the loss of the trees of Valinor. Then again, I, it's not like that would be despicable or something, But I do feel like we, we we will have we will have lost some of the Tolkienian essence. I mean, yes, we should we should be weeping for Finway. that should be powerful. But I mean, man, the death of the trees, that's one of the mythic elements of Tolkien's whole mythology. I, I, I mean, it's, it's just, it's on the top list. You know, I mean, there are very few things that are more important than the loss of the trees. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I was uh, very supportive last time of the idea that Feanor should be hit really hard by that. I mean, I think that really Feanor's um, one of our kind of emotional leads in that whole thing should be Fanor's response to that. Fanor should be moved almost to giving up the Silmarils in order to restore the trees um, by his mourning of the, the light and beauty that has been lost. The idea that Valinor is, is you know, he wanted to spread out he was thinking of going back to Middle-earth. He felt that they were hemmed in a narrow place, all that kind of, you know, he's been one of the grumblers as the the, the Noldor have been falling and he feels like the the Valar have done them wrong. But that doesn't mean he wants Valinor destroyed. You know, that doesn't mean that he doesn't value what's there. And so I think that he... The the, the, the mourning of everyone, the Valar, the other elves, and Feanor himself for the trees... Really needs to be. I mean, I just I think it's 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 a super important thing to capture. Um, Finway's death is important, but in a sense, it's it's. Um, I almost called it denouement. That's not exactly right. It's not exactly denouement, but it's but it's like denouement in the sense that it's after the fact, right? Fanor's already had his turning point. His decision not to give up the Silmarils has already set his feet on the course that he's going to be walking for the rest of his life. His mourning for his father is in the shape of his character and in his his own arc. In a sense, it's 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 little more than another moment when he fails to repent. <laughs> Basically, you know, like he's he's not going to respond I don't know, constructively. It's, it's, I mean, again, it's sad. Um, uh, it's sad, but it's, um, uh, and it should be part and, and, and it, I think it would be very easy for us to kind of fold that into the loss, you know the sense of loss and the sense of of passing that we get, you know the the sense of the end of an era um, that of course the death of the trees really ushers in, and the death of Finway and, and and watching Feanor mourn his father is certainly a way in which we can make that sense of loss and that sense of 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 of, of the passing of former glory more. Kind of personally tangible to people, but it's it's subsidiary. You know, it's uh, um, a okay. it's an echo of the greater loss. <clears throat> anyway, um, uh, but uh, um, but yeah. Hakan says, uh, "Perhaps we should end. You know, the final the final image of the uh, episode should be a picture of the dead trees." I like, though. I like our our final images from last time. Um, the, the you know m- remember the two images we had last time were were Feanor um, taking up the the crown of Finwë, right um, and Morgoth putting on his iron crown with the Silmarils on, um, and showing the, the 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 burned hand of Morgoth, and and I still really like that because in its way, um, that visual image, the visual image of the divine hand of Morgoth seared and burned uh, and scarred by the. The holy light of the Silmarils, which he has, you know, greedily clutched in his hand. That's a great symbol right there. Um, and mm-hmm. in many ways, I feel, encapsulates the fall of Melkor and of Feanor as well. I mean, I I would... I, that would be pretty high on my list of visual images that really capture the theme, not only of that episode, but of, like, the whole second half of season two. Um, so I still want to end with that, but I do think, Hakon, this is why I want to dwell on this—the the image of the, the the last Valinorian shot, you know, and maybe it could even be right before those two, right? Right before we get the very final shots of Feanor uh, and of Morgoth, because I want to set that up so that we're ready for season three. It, it, it those images, the throne room images that we talked about last time are such a great way of both encapsulating the, the place where those two characters are and the fall that they have under, that they have undergone while also looking forward to season three and setting up season three. But right before that, I think ending with, you know, the sort of the lingering image of, of Nienna weeping over the mound with the dead trees. I, I would be totally, um, uh, I would, for instance, be totally in support of favoring the weeping over the trees over the action sequences, right? One might be tempted, like a modern filmmaker might be tempted to be like, hey, let's play up like Tolkas and Orame's Pursuit of of Morgoth, right? Let's make that into a big chase scene. You know, one can kind of imagine Peter Jackson doing that kind of thing with this this sort of thing. I would want to do it the other way around. I would want to downplay the Pursuit of Morgoth and play up the mourning over the dead trees. Sorry, Dave, go ahead. I was going to say
0: uh, that's a good idea. I like that idea a lot. Um, I'm just wondering also if the goal is if the goal is really to make sure that the viewers have an emotional resonance with with the tree and the, and with the trees and their deaths or destruction. Then I think you know it, it, it's probably we have to think not just about how to portray the destruction and to try and communicate the sorrow of the characters on screen. We probably need to be thinking carefully, you know, we we can't go back and retread episodes we've already discussed because we've got to keep moving. But um I guess I would encourage the the writers to think very carefully about how to how to build how to you know, lay the groundwork for this. Like it won't be enough to just sort of tr- you know, have the trees be there and not really have them involved in the story or not never portray the positive relationship the characters have with the trees and then only try to convince the viewers that, hey, it's really sad the trees are dead once they're dead. Yes. We need to actually have them be active characters in the show somehow.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we, we would have the opportunity for that to to, to establish that, of course, um, mm-hmm. in the episode with the Ambassadors, you know, with Episode 2 at the beginning of oh, the yeah, season. Right. Um, and, you know, in many ways, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I think... The, the really great way to do that would be to frame that in parallel, right? To
2: have
1: <clears throat> to have uh you know, the scene with the ambassadors before the trees, uh, and they're all in wonder at the scenes. The 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 scene with everybody standing around and looking at the dead trees at the end should deliberately echo that that scene. Right? The scene when Finway uh and Elway uh and uh, and, and Ingway are first standing before the trees. And um yeah. I agree. I mean, it is something that we have to that that we would have to be conscious of returning to throughout the Valinorian section, you know, to make sure that people are because people aren't going to understand the significance of the loss of the trees if they don't understand the significance of the life of the trees and how it because it needs to be as as I think it is in Tolkien's work. I mean, it's 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 the noontide of Valinor. Right. And the, the, the trees are the trees are are are. Well, I was going to say a symbol, but they're more than just a symbol, but they're, um, they are, um, uh, well, I'll use that word for lack of another, um, they are a symbol of the, 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 the ancient glory of Valinor, you know, the glory, which, which, which has gone and can't return just the same way, you know, like the, the, the innocence and, 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 you know, the innocent glory of the morning of Valinor, um, uh, which is gone and will never return and there's a real loss there, you know, even though Valinor is still there and the Valar is still there and things can still be good, it's never going to be the same again. And that, 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 idea of, of, you know, so connecting them in that way definitely is something that has to be, that we have to, we have to do. And it's certainly something that would have to be very consciously worked into um, the Valinorian scenes to make sure that the trees, uh, achieve that that position i mean a, trees are tricky right i mean it's hard to make trees characters dave as you were saying because like they don't do anything you know they just they, famously trees just kind of stand there right
0: um it's not in the you know visually interesting uh, on-screen traditional well, they're not going to be involved in any action scenes that's for
1: sure exactly exactly i mean it's oh, was it a C.S. Lewis essay I was reading a couple months ago, where he said it was explicitly that he was like, it's, it's hard to get anything about trees as trees into a drama. You know, like, you just, like, you can't do it. You know, it, it's... Um, uh, so, yeah. It, it's... Um, that, is, that is a difficulty, and that's why I think um, we have to... Uh, um, we have to... Make, at the very least, we need to make it a visual a recurring visual symbol um and be careful how we manage the associations with it you know yeah. um but yeah yeah um okay so anyway so yeah so as far as the as far as the the, the the climax is concerned again i mean as i was saying last time it's really it's all about the fall and 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 that moment that's really the uh that's really the that's really the crucial moment Feanor's, uh, fan or, you know, the, anytime Mando says thou hast spoken, you know, that's important, right? I mean, like it's that, a, a, that is, that is, uh, that is Mando's way of saying that this character has just had a really significant moment. You know, they have, they have made a choice, which is a really important choice, you know, in their lives and in their trajectories. And so the, yeah, that to me is, is really the heart of, uh um, the, the, well, certainly the most important scene uh, in that last episode. Um, good. Okay. So let's, let's, let's go back to the frame. Uh, Trish, is that you? Are you with us again?
3: I am. Okay. My, uh, Yay! completely froze, and so I had to dig out my, my, uh, backup.
0: Oh, you, or your, okay. you or your computer?
3: Froze. Computer froze. <laughs> no, no, I'm not freezing. It's 70 <laughs> degrees here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, cool. And the
3: good news I, is I didn't miss anything because I came in right as you were talking about what we're going to talk about today. So I'm like, oh, I didn't miss right. anything. <laughs> we didn't <get laughs> very far.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Good. It's um, interesting. Uh, 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 Tom Hillman says Ovid, Shakespeare, and Tolkien got in trees as part of the drama. Not many more. Tom, I would add Virgil and Dante to that, but they cheated by making the trees talk, <laughs> right? So that's that's. Uh, uh, hey, that's an option. As
0: does Tolkien later, right? <laughs>
1: exactly. I guess Tolkien cheats in a similar way, though it's not quite as ex- overtly as overtly cheating as it's not actually the tree itself that's talking uh certainly at least not in virgil but uh, anyway anyway, anyway what if we okay made,
0: what if we made uh what if we made Talpyrion and Laurelin into actual like characters
1: <laughs> i'm oh, sure geez. nobody would queue over and die if we do if we did that um uh yeah so we can have like you know parlor conversation with like Laurelin coming over for tea to like visit the elves and stuff and everything, that would totally not change the dynamics at all. No. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Great suggestion. So, let's talk about the frame. So, at the beginning of the season, understandably, because it was the beginning of the season, the primary thing that we were focused on when we talked about the frame, was the the, the, the chief question, our, our main focus for Arwen was the question of where do elves belong? Do elves belong in Middle-earth or Valinor? Now that remains the central theme for season two through the first half of that. I mean, as, as we've been talking about from the beginning, season two is one that has definitively two halves, right? Um, where do the elves belong, Middle-earth or Valinor? But then once we get to Valinor and largely leave behind the rest of the... For now, the rest of the elves that stayed behind and the story becomes the Valinorian story. Once it becomes the Valinorian story, it becomes a story of fall. So there are kind of two questions that I would have about that. First, um, do we... How intricately do we try to connect those two themes, those two halves? Um, And secondly, what... um, Do we try to reflect? To what extent do we try to reflect both interests in the Arwen frame of season two? Um, So let's look at the more general question first. Um, Here's one of the kind of unfair things. One could argue, as indeed, if you think about it, Feanor is going to argue, right? That what happened, like the darkening of Valinor, sort of proves going to Valinor was a bad idea. There's, there's going to be a sense in which, um, so, I mean, there's a sense in which if the Avari could watch from afar the goings on in episode 13, they would likely say, I told you so, we were right. That just proves it, right? here you guys were all like ah let us go and commune with the valar and let us go into this like you know safe and perfect world that you know middle earth is like dark and dangerous and the valar are calling us to come and join with them and let us let us go and like you know retire into this world of bliss and guess what it turns out like things are dangerous and everything over there too like it's did, what did they gain right um, and anyway, the, 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 the great glory of Valinor turns out to be perishable, and it has in fact perished. So what have they gained right, uh, from going over there in the first place? I'm not saying that justifiable would be a wholly justified response, but I could easily imagine Anavari making it. And as I say, it's not all that different from the argument that Feanor himself is in fact going to make uh, in the great speech that he makes uh, in Tyrion, which he'll be making in episode one of season three. Um, so there is a, there is a sense in which the events that the second half of season two leads up to come back around to being relevant. The tricky part is it's only, it's, it's lopsided, right? Um, Necessarily, it's lopsided because we've left the Middle Earth half of the story behind. If if our if our question through the through the first half of the season was Middle Earth, Thalinor, Middle Earth, Valinor, well, we've stopped even thinking about Middle Earth, right? So their half of the argument, their half of the question, um, is no longer sort of under discussion anymore, um, and so. It's hard to come back at the end of the season to say, like, now we have uh, we have some more insight into the Valinor or Middle-earth question. We can say that. We do have some more insight, but we hardly have a balanced additional insight, if you see what I mean. Um, right. So it's kind of tricky coming back at the end of the season to sort of link them back together. I mean, on the one hand, we can say, well, okay, we kind of... Uh, you know, we, we have some more insight into the Valinorian option, we'll get some more insight into the Middle-earth side of the question, you know, just kind of, you know, hold your horses until we get there. Um, but that doesn't help us in the season finale of season two, right? Um, So how explicitly do we want to come back to that question? And the frame is the place where that happens, right? I mean, obviously, within the inside the frame, you know, in the, in the first stage story, we're not, um, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to be, uh, uh, talking about the, que- I mean, as the trees of Valinor are being destroyed, nobody's going to be debating the philosophical question of where elves belong right. in Middle-earth or Valinor, right? So within the frame, it's not something that really can come up, I think, um, Though again, obviously, that
3: up being fra- those episodes probably should be frameless,
1: you know. Well, almost. or that's one option. Another option I'm is that we use the order. frame as a way to invite people to make this connection, right? Yes. You know, mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. f- you know, like FinGolfin him, you know, FinGolfin and Nerdanel, and uh, they're not asking the question at that point, you know. But um, but Arwen still can be and therefore can be kind of prompting us to be another option is that we have the frame itself move away from that. You know, we have Arwen herself moving through, uh, like basically she can, she doesn't necessarily have to take the whole season to come to her conclusions about where elves belong. Maybe, maybe her own deliberations sort of follow in, sort of follow in the same path. Um, let me tell you what I mean by that. Again, just as season two of the first age story has two primary themes, right? First, we have the where do elves belong theme, and then we have the, 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 the theme of, of, of the fall, the fall of Melkor, the fall of, of Feanor, um, how great sub creators, um, fall into darkness, right? Um, that's the theme of the second half of the season, well, what if Arwen is considering the same thing? What if she is considering the question of where elves belong primarily in the first half of the season, and then she's thinking about fall from glory and uh, and you know like, like death of the trees themed contemplations combined with fall of of uh, of of Melkor and Sauron kind of themed. Um, options. What if? Um, what if we have? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Hakan, that's a great summary. Like the first half is is purpose slash home, and the second half is loss slash fall. Exactly. What if she focuses on loss on on loss and falling in the second half of the frame? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's something that could easily. That's something that could easily be done. And I think it would even be logical. To some extent, one of the things that was making me uncomfortable about the frame, the more I was thinking about it, was, like, are we really going to have her monitoring on that one same question throughout the entire season? we Are we getting like 12 episodes of Arwen being like, but hang on, I'm still not sure where elves belong, right? You know, I, it's, we could do it. You know, there are things that we could do but what if um
0: what if instead of what if instead of her mulling it it's more her like it, i when, when and i'm sure we've discussed this before and my sleep deprived brain has totally forgotten but like sort of where where do we think where where do we imagine arwen is in sort of her development like are we thinking is this sort of a almost like a Teenage Arwen. I mean, that doesn't make any sense as an elf. But basically, is she? We're thinking of her as kind of a maybe younger, not you know, you know, prone to arguing with her father type character. <laughs> so I'm kind of wondering, because because obviously, obviously, the resonance of this where do elves belong decision for her is really comes down to her decision about or is her making her um, you know. Uh, uh, descendant of Baron and Luthien decision, right? Yes. And in particular yes. deciding does she want to go with her father over the sea or does she want to stay here with Aragorn. Right. And so so the question so so one possibility is it seems like there would be like a natural debate there right. Arwen, Arwin maybe maybe she stakes out a position of I'm going to stay here with Aragorn and Elrond maybe maybe we have kind of movie um, um, a kind of almost a movie, you know, Peter Jackson-esque Elrond who disapproves of this decision and doesn't like it and says, no, no, you're supposed to go over to the West.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And of course, to, to sort of add to that, the tricky element that we have here is that the moment of decision, that is, do I stay with Aragorn or not, um, doesn't come up in this season, right? She's still not met Aragorn. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that still lies in the future. And th- for that reason, therefore, my answer to your very first question: Do we depict her as this kind of like adolescent trying to find her way? You know, the, sort of the, the kind of the teen Arwen. In one sense, no. Um, as, as Nick says, she she's only three thousand, right? So I mean, she's right. T- yeah. Okay. But um, but 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 more than that, it's not about her chronological age. The important thing is where she is like in her life. And the, the, there, to me, there's, there's, I am very comfortable depicting Arwen as being in some ways in that kind of like late teen stage because there's a, very, there's, there's a real sense in which that's true. It's true in the sense that just as like an 18-year-old person or like a 17-year-old person has... A, a 17-year-old human usually like they haven't set their course yet. Right. They are they are at a place where they are uh, or at least feel themselves to be, you know, physically and psychologically ready to sort of begin their lives and set their course, But they haven't done it yet. Right. They're 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 major decision points where they, uh, you know, determine the path that their life is going to take. No, you know, often haven't happened yet. And right. and that's that's where Arwen is. Right. The, the point in her where she is, you know, in a sense, she's still kind of in juvenile limbo, in the sense that she has not yet determined the course that her life is going to take. Um, she's right. not actually a juvenile. I, I, so, now when I say in a sense, I'm not at all she is
0: suggesting... She's basically a millennial living in her father's basement.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not suggesting we actually depict her as being immature. Right. That That's but the I, sense in which I don't think she's she is like a teenager, but she but is. She hasn't, she hasn't
0: committed herself to a particular... No, she Desired her sort of her life destiny or direction. Yeah, that's that's what I'm kind of thinking. So, but I'm wondering. I, I, obviously, I don't want to do like a superficial adolescent rebellion thing. But I'm just wondering if, you know, sort of uh, a, a teenager, or even a young adult, in that position. You know, teenagers and young adults in that position are kind of prone to adopting adopting a position or a point of view even a little bit prematurely. Right. and and then standing by it vociferously and kind right. of pushing for it as a way of sort of exercising that position right and you know frequently then down the road they'll reverse it or become much more nuanced so right. I'm just kind of wondering if we if one way to do this is to pick a side for her and like now I'm kind of thinking maybe maybe the maybe we should do the ironic thing and go the other direction with her and have have sort of limbo Arwen be like, you know, no, obviously I'm going to go to the West. There's no reason for me to stay in Middle-earth. What's here for the elves?
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, that would be, that would be certainly, you know, um, that would be a way to create kind of tension and and movement for her, right, to sort of show Mm -hmm. her her perspective changing over time. Um, Yeah. You know, that's definitely something I think that we could, we could, could definitely consider that. The biggest, the, the the other big issue, though, of course, is it's not just about her dad and about the you know the, the future question of Aragorn, but but her right. mom, and that was our focus at the what beginning of the season, was her trying to, yeah, to still trying to deal with the issue of her mom. So we have to make it make sense on that level, and it, it has to. It has to make sense as a reaction to her mom's... Because that's obviously... I mean, I say obviously. The question of do I leave with my dad or not, is a non-issue because her dad isn't leaving, right? What is... Right. I mean, it's an issue, but it's a very abstract future issue still. The immediate relevant uh, issue is her mom. And her mom... The fact that her mom has left. And so, Dave, I could easily see how her mom's departure on the one hand could... Uh, lead her to that kind of thing. Like, yeah, well, you know, mom went over there. I'll go over there before too long too. Right. That's what, that, that's what you do. Right. You go West. Mom did it. I'm doing it. What's the issue. Right. I, that I could see. Right. And, and as you say, to have that be not really a fully developed, not really kind of a nuanced uh, perspective to, to show her not, you know, only now really kind of really beginning to weigh what that decision is and what it means. Um, but, um, so that's one reaction I could see, but of course I could also see the other reaction. And that's I think the one that we were talking about more at the beginning of the season, where we're talking about her basically being troubled by the fact that her mom's departure seems like a cop-out. Um, right. Yeah, uh, so um, yeah. And no, I mean, both uh, uh, Halstein and uh, Mike are, are are saying very sensibly that you know, I mean, obviously we don't want to get too literal in thinking about adolescent or teenager because, you know, it's we don't want to be projecting uh, um, you know, human developmental stages onto elves because there's no reason to think that they would have they would go through exactly the same kinds of you know, to, to say that elves are just like humans except their different psychological stages last, you know, ten or a hundred times longer is just kind of a, a silly way of looking at elvish psychology uh-huh. and stuff, so... Um, uh, anyway, I, 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 and you know, so so, you know, Mike's point, which I think is a really good one, um, is that uh, uh, you know it's imposing too much of men onto elves to demand that age in years automatically leads to maturity. You know, as well, like they, 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 they their experience of the world is just is just different. Um, so I agree, I, I agree with you, Mike. There's there's a sense in which, especially. Think of the places where she grows up, right? Arwen has two places, Lothlorien and Rivendell. What do they have in common? Think about that for a second. Lothlorien and Rivendell are the two places in Middle-earth which are under the influence of the Elvish Rings of Power, Mm -hmm. which means they're these two little isolated, like, Places that time forgot, right? The the whole like the impulse t- to just kind of preservationism that the elves have that Tolkien talks about, which is you know a, a, a big part of the um of the power of the of the three rings, right? Um, so there's a sense in which not only has she, she hasn't experienced Valinor, but there's a very real sense in which she hasn't experienced Middle Earth e- either. You know, she's think about the experience of the fellowship when they were in Lothlorien, right? And they are like, oh, that that wasn't a month. They didn't even realize that a month passed while they were there, right? Yeah. Arwen has lived there and in Rivendell her whole life. You know, she's lived she's lived her entire life in like Elvish ring, uh, throwback world, right? Um. So, uh, yeah. So so. For these reasons, I am totally comfortable having Arwen be kind of still in a, uh, you know, she still needs to grow up and, and understand how the world works and to make up her mind about what she thinks of it and what her own destiny is going to be. That seems totally to be the place where not only she, she could be, but where she really needs to be. Because the important element in Arwen's life is going to is the choice that's going to be coming up of course in season five which is uh, frame of season five her meeting of, 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 of Aragorn and the choice yeah. that she's going to end up making um, I think um,
0: and I, I, on just sort of the meta point here I, I think I think there's a very good argument to be made that it, That elves would sort of naturally have like either an extended adolescence or sort of a form of arrested development because it's kind of because as you say nothing changes so you're you're you know you're born and then within I I guess I guess we have no idea how rapidly elves mature physically like at what point do you kind of reach that sort of young adult stasis that Mm -hmm. they're all in But then at that point, your role in your family and in kind of your society around you doesn't ever change, right? Like, it's not like, you know, eventually Elrond will pass away and then Arwen will inherit leadership of Rivendell. No, she's always Elrond's daughter. (laughs) Right. So he's always in
1: charge. (laughs) Um, Someday, my daughter, all this will be yours. No, it won't. (laughs) 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 Where's he going? (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly.
0: So So, I mean... It's sort of if you start if you really do start thinking about it too much, you start to realize like there's really no incentive to grow up. I feel like a lot of elves would be like Peter Pan type figures, who like you know basically you're like so far down on the especially in a place like Rivendell or or, or in Valinor where there's really very you know like there's no. You know, it's not like your job is you're going to be a soldier manning the wall or something like that. Basically, you have almost no responsibility. What is your job? You're so far down the rung, you have no decision-making capability. Um, you have no, but there's, you know, there's nothing important. There's no strife or conflict going on. You just kind of go about your day having fun and stuff. There's, It's basically no incentive to grow up.
1: Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, the, and, 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 and you, you think about that. I mean, think about the Trolololali elves, right? Yeah. Think about about the elves in Lothlorien who have no desire to leave. Like, they're fine. They're totally content to just stay in Lothlorien, and as far as you can see, nothing would ever change. They would just stay within Lothlorien forever. They don't need any interaction with the outside world. They don't care what's happening outside the forest. I mean, that's kind of, it seems to be, as far as we can tell, the default perspective. Uh, So, I mean, if you want to call that Juvenile, if you want to call that adolescent. I mean, again, I think that's unfair. It's, it's, you know, why should we even ask the question? Why should we even impose, you know, again, human developmental categories as, you know, f- right. a framework yeah. onto the elvish perspective? Um, <coughs> but, but yes, that 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 kind of sense. You know, there's a way in which um, you could say it's a totally elvish. It's a totally like acceptable elvish mode to. Um, to just not deal with the rest of the world, you know? And in a sense, that's the pro-Valinor side of things, right? Um, You know, uh, to say, like, just go off into the West and leave the rest of Middle-earth behind, there's a sense in which the elves that are still in Middle-earth are still actually, in a sense, on the Valinorian side of the fence, if you understand what I mean. If the question is, we should stay and engage with Middle-earth, well, to what extent are the elves like the elves? The, your your average Lothlorien elf. To what extent are they engaging with the world? They're engaging with the Lothlorian, right? Um, you know, they love the Malorns and they love the forest, but uh, you know, do they? How much do they even know about what's going on in the rest of the world? Like, have they ever have have they ever heard of Gondor? Seriously, I mean, I know this seems like uh, insulting and stuff, but. Um, but but, I mean I do think that there is this sense of like an elvish perspective which is really just internal um and which doesn't actually really 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 care um um Marie says tellingly after the departure of the rings Lothlorien becomes empty you know it's it's Lothlorien is gonna um uh is gonna go Yep. Um,
0: this has been a great this has been a great uh, detour
1: it is well no this is I'm important to kind about, of work I'm all this stuff out um, talking because, about
0: psychological development of elves
1: yeah yeah well and trying to wrap our heads around that because of course in part this is just elvishness it's just one of the things that makes them different um yeah yeah um so here's my thought. We were talking about the death of Calebrian or the you know the suffering of Calebrian and her departure as the precipitating thing at the beginning. We were talking about that as the precipitating factor which leads her to que- to ask to start really asking the questions in the first place. Um, you know, do it, it. should we go or should we stay Um, the the second thing is um, the second thing though is I don't think I think that that actually could be connected to the second half of the season instead of the first what if it's not the impetus for her asking should I stay or should I go what if it's how we get into the question of of fall because of course, as uh, you know, as as Tom was just suggesting, responding to what I was saying about uh, about Rivendell and 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 Lorien, um, the one way in which Arwen's life has been impacted by anything outside of those two little Elvish, you know, oases is the torture and suffering of her mother and her mother's departure. It's the it is, in a sense, the only way in which... And it's, you know... Trish, you've talked many times before about, like... Big picture, how much Elrond's life has sucked. Yeah, you know right. and how, how much that guy... When you look at it from the beginning of his life through the end of his life, like how much he sees and how much he suffers over the course of his life. Um, but, you know, Arwen? Not so much. That's <laughs> true. I mean, the, the the suffering and departure of her mother...
3: She's been pretty sheltered, actually, exactly. by all standards.
1: Exactly, very much so. She's in con—I mean, she's being sort of raised under the influence of two people who have experienced a very great deal, right, in Goadrio and Elrond. But Arwen herself has been sheltered, and her only real—her en- mom's death is really her her primary encounter with. Um, you know the evils of the world. Primary, like personal encounter with the evils of the world. Even that, of course, is secondhand. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, yeah. Halstein, don't worry about it so much. We're not really. Th- I'm not. We're not thinking in terms of rebellious teenager. That's that's not a that's no. not a concept we're really focused on here at all. Um, what we are focused on though is basically Arwen in a place where she is trying to find her own place, um, and. Is she just going to kind of go along with things? Remember what her destiny is. Her destiny is to leave Elfdom, essentially, right? So the idea that she would begin by calling into question some of the basic assumptions of Elfdom. What does it mean to be an Elf? What should Elves be doing? Is this even right you know, do it, should I just carry on going along with this? I've just been spending my whole life, you know, like doing nothing other than the occasional tra la la lolly frolic, you know, down and making, you know, occasionally I go down and make bannocks by the river in Rivendell, and that's like a big outing, right? I mean, is that seriously, like, what is she doing with her life? What is she accomplishing with her life? Does she need to accomplish anything with her life? Again, that to me is, is a to say what have you accomplished in your life seems to me a human biased question. Again, remember the conversation between um, between uh, 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 what's his name, Huor and Hurin and Turgen, right? Where the men are like, we don't have time to sit around indefinitely. We've got to make something of our lives, and we've got to make it now, or we'd lose our chance, right? That impulse to be like, I must, I must make hay with the, while the sun shines. That's a human impulse. Um. I think the Elvish, it seems to me that the Elvish uh, perspective is different, but therefore also the Elvish temptation, in a sense, is to end up doing doing nothing, basically, mm-hmm. um, to allow themselves merely to become separate from the world. Um, Marie says, now we're making it sound like Arwen, instead of having teenage rebellion, is having something more like a midlife crisis. Um, but but okay. I mean, I, I, I think again, it's not human psychology. I think there would be elements of both of those things, right? There would be ways in which it would be like both of those things. Sure. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, So where do we want her to be at the beginning? At the beginning, and I, I'd obviously, for the beginning of the season, it obviously works to have her asking the question about what is the, where is the home of elves and where do they belong. How would we want to start that? If we, don't, if we do save... Well, let me finish fleshing out a little bit my idea about, about her mom's death and how her mom's death could fit into the second half of the season. Um, again, the second half of the season is about fall and it's about loss, Right. Right. Her her loss for her own her her loss of her mother, right? Um is her major experience of that. Her only really experience of that that we know of. Um and what's more, it can easily lead to larger questions of fall, of like the consequences of choices. How do you respond to this? What do we do? Um You know, I mean, this is something that could come up, for instance, in conversations with her brothers, right? Her brothers took vengeance for her mother, for their mother's suffering. And her brothers are in part motivated. What they, part of what they do, the reason her brothers are not, unlike her, her brothers are not staying in Rivendell, right? Her brothers are out actively engaged with the Dunedain and doing stuff, Right. Her brothers are going to go to the Battle of Pel are going to participate you know, in the Battle of, Pel- of Pelennor Field. They do this, in large part, we're told, because they, they are motivated by their mother's suffering. They want to take vengeance And haven't on they the been
3: with the rangers in Aragorn? I mean, they actually have been, haven't yeah, they? Yeah,
1: sure. Exactly. And th- and I think they, they they need to be pretty significant characters in the frame of season three. Uh, when we come to that. So I, I want to keep that in mind, is that I think that Eladon and Elrohir need to be pretty prominent in the frame of Season 3. If we stick to uh, the, you know, like, teen Aragorn um, focus for the for the, the frame of Season 3, which I still really like, um, Eladon and El here I think, have to be really prominent there. Um, but anyway, okay, so... Um, uh, They—they've made a choice, right? They've—they have encountered loss in a particular way. Well, think about it. There are some inviting parallels to Feanor's response, right? Let's go out and hunt them down. Let's get—you know—let's get. You know, let's get and it's different, right? But like, you know. One of the things that we see at the end of season two, you know, like, you killed my father, or really what we will see in season three, you killed my father prepared to die, is really not a good life philosophy. Um, you know, that's not like the, that's not the key to, to, you know, balanced and positive choices for the rest of your life. Um, so... I would like one of her brothers. First of all, we have to be able to... We have to differentiate her brothers, right? I mean, Eladon and Roe here are a matched set. They're like, they're like a cup and saucer, right? They're a unit. Um, I... I mean, there's nothing. In the context of the Lord of the Rings, there's absolutely nothing that um, distinguishes them from each other. Um, Yeah, as Tom Hillman quotes, there's 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 no future in revenge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, We need to distinguish them. And, And I would like one of them to be darker than the other one. Not physically, spiritually darker than the other one. Both of them are you know are are actively engaged in the events of the outside world and they've been informed in that they've been they've been they were been motivated to that by their mother's suffering i think it would be kind of interesting if we used the two twins to be able to show like a more positive and a more negative avenue to pursue that see what i mean i'm not saying i want one of them to be evil um I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not wanting to take either Elodon or Elro here to the dark side.
3: So kind of like the Merry and Pippin of elves, right? One's serious,
2: one's a little bit more, <laughs> more <laughs> alive, maybe.
1: <laughs> P- possibly, possibly, I, I, I'm. One's more a poet. Sir, <laughs> you know. I would want one of them to be like not, not evil, but I would like one of them to, like, to, 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 to see like. Pessimist, maybe a pessimist, well, or uh, he is uh, like walking a dangerous path. Like this is a guy who could fall off the path, right? right. I mean, he, he he could like there's 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 not much between him and uh, and again because it's one again one of the things we're going to be focusing on in the second half of the season is how you start down that path, right? You know what that path into darkness looks like, um, and. You know, showing one of her brothers to be, you know, on a path which is at least running parallel to that path, you know, and and it could it's, it wouldn't take much to sort of slide him down, uh, uh, slide him down into that. Both again, both of them could be sort of similar, but but have a different kind of uh, a different kind of. Oh, I
3: get from. it, I get it, I get it. So, like for example, uh, he could be more prideful. Uh, the characteristics that actually bring about, say, Fanor's fall, we could mm-hmm. see it in some measure in one of the twins, right? So he's yes. kind of skirting the edge. Yeah. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, exactly. Again, he hasn't gone wrong. He hasn't gone bad, but it's only he's only like a stage or two. Like you know, he's going to need an intervention at some point to like keep him from going bad. You know, if he if he carries on this way. Um, I like heck, this
0: idea though i'm I hope we're not throwing uh one of the brothers under the bus
1: well I mean what do we frankly I think it's a better fate than just being like than Tweedledee than just being
0: like, you know, yeah like, having no care oh, good point yeah that's true it's true at least he's getting some character development
1: yeah yeah exactly um and and frankly this we can we can even show i mean how cool would it be to show this in his character in these you know so chronologically, this is still fairly early, right? Still decades before the Lord of the Rings. What if during the course of the Lord of the Rings, we're going to have them in the Lord of the Rings, right? They're going to be there. Um, I mean, just... The, like, the whole time, they're with Aragorn. They're with Aragorn, right? They're there. Like, the, as we follow Aragorn, which we will do and you know, obviously we're going to be doing that in a little bit more detail than happens in the book. You know, the sort of the summary, the the... After the fact retelling of the story of Aragorn and the Paths of the Dead and all that, right? Um, Eladon and El-Roh here are with him the whole time, so like we're going to have them as 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 as, as characters. We're going to be getting to know them. True, um,
0: and also so, yeah, so, so know, we
1: can have a real turning point. Like we could actually have an intervention for which. Uh, by the way, votes. Which one should it be? Which should be the dark one, Elodon or Elrohir?
0: Doesn't seem to be any. Doesn't seem to be any compelling reason to pick one or the other. Since are, is there ever a case where there one or the other is mentioned without the other one?
1: Uh, no, I can't think of any.
0: <laughs> are they even differentiated in any of the in like War in the North or any of the games?
1: Uh, well, I mean they're they're separated. Uh, at times. What if we miss both of them? Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Karita says, which name sounds better when being shouted? Eladon. Uh, Eladon. Yes. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Good call, Karita. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm trying to think which one might, which one maybe sounds, I'm trying to see if either of them sounds more alike. Like know, I'm, or...
1: I'm just imagining somebody saying like, Eladon, no. That sounds much better <laughs> than like, Elro here, no. Yeah. No, clearly. Eladon, obviously. Yeah.
0: Clearly. So, um, it, you know, the nice thing about this is it's, this—it's not like this is utterly baseless, right? Like this, there's clearly some, there's some grounding in the text. Like these guys, these guys went out of their way, like out of all the elves in Rivendell. In fact, out of all the elves that we know of in the text, they're the only two that uh, go out of their way to participate in the uh, the final battles against Yeah, Sauron, no, they, right?
1: they're in, right? Yeah, they they come yeah. along because they don't want to be left out. Right? Exactly, Absolutely. and it's yeah. not. And it's not
0: like, and when their when their motivations for going are not just, it's not described as out of great friendship for uh, Aragorn and the or the Dunedain, or it's like, it's described as a desire to participate in the battles, yes,
1: right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and and they have exactly as Marie was saying, and that's what I was talking about before. They have a personal vendetta against orcs. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, it's the uh, like the, the one of the reasons that they go to the battle is because it will give them the... They don't want to miss this opportunity to slaughter that many orcs. I mean, like, seriously, that's that's and, and that's and the kind of darkness I'm talking about with, like, I would want Elodon, if we decide that it's Elodon, which I think we did, Um, I, I would want Elodon to be, you know, to, like, very seriously say, this is one of the reasons that he's coming. He's like, because there are more orcs to kill down there. and And yeah. have people be like... That kind of makes me uncomfortable, man. <laughs> like,
2: yeah. it's,
1: it's, it shouldn't just be about killing orcs, right? And, you know, I, so basically, when I talk about darkness, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like, any day in which I get to kill orcs is a good day, right? That's yeah. the kind of attitude that I think that he has. Um, and 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 it's it's um, it's it's fine, you know. It's um, it's it's good. It's 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 it, understandable. You know, and that
0: makes me. It now makes me sort of mourn the fact that that they're, that that they aren't involved in like Legolas and Gimli's game where they're accounting number of orcs killed, because I have a feeling that they both probably did pretty good.
1: Oh yeah, there's no way like, uh, Gimli and Legolas are like book league <laughs> when it comes to orc killing compared to the two of them. I mean, I don't even know what their tallies are. Wouldn't it be really funny? Actually, that would be really funny. Be like, I got forty one. Well, I got forty two and. Oh and are like. Well, we've been competing for some time, and you know, I'm up to four hundred and seventy-six thousand eight hundred and seventy-three, and my brother uh, only has yeah, you know, so yeah. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I, I, I think uh, I, 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 I like it. But again, see, we, but you see my point of how this is relevant to this frame. Arwen can see in her brother whom we talked about maybe bringing one or both of her brothers to Rivendell during the course of the frame um, mm-hmm. and she can see in him the potential for fall and darkness right you know so first she's dealing with you know do we stay or do we go right what is the home what is the purpose of elves and then we're talking about how things can go so first of all the idea of her mother's of her mother's death like the the this is a, a reminder right just as and this is the parallel we we you know we were making the parallel at the beginning which i actually don't want to lose cuz it was awesome the parallel between the, the 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 kidnapping of calabrian and the and the in the dark rider by quivianen i forgot how much i loved that now in retrospect but anyhow um, uh, the the <laughs> anyway but the point is um, the Suffering of her mom, the kidnapping of her mom by the orcs, shows how, like, the darkness of Middle-earth, you know, how like how loss is possible. Loss is always an ever-present uh, uh, risk. Um, but, of course, it's true in Valinor as well as in Middle-earth. But it's not just the fact that evil might strike suddenly from the outside like it struck her mom when she was, like, minding her own business and... Um, and uh, uh, traveling from one of the little elf oases to the other elf oasis, Um, and in the way in between, in that dark and wild land in between, she got caved, she got pounced upon by evil. That in itself is kind of an important context, I think, for Arwen, and introduces this idea, uh, not just of purpose, but of loss. Um, But at the same time, then there's the question of like, well, and how do we... So first of all, this also shows the 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 dark world is closing in around them right we also talked about them looking over at dol guldur and saying look there's dar- there's there's the darkness right there you know yes we are in this little enclave of light over here but there's a darkness right there and it's likely to destroy us eventually um so the loss the destruction of what they have and of what they've built but then the question of and how do we relate to that you know Because in the end, that's more important. The fall of there is a sense in which, just as at the end of episode thirteen, the fall of Feanor, Feanor's decision is more important than the loss of the trees. It's it's a more profound loss than the loss of the trees it's loss of trees is a big deal <clears throat> but it's a but the fall of of fanor is in a sense a bigger deal and similarly like the fall of gondolin is a big deal but there's a sense in which the betrayal of gondolin by migwin is a bigger deal if you see what i mean by that um so i don't know um uh I'm thinking if she moves on to be contemplating, you know, so maybe she's actually actively considering her brother. Maybe she and Galadriel are having this conversation about Eladon. Um, maybe Eladon. maybe she talks to Eladon about their mom and here's some of Eladon's, you know, dark, you know, his sees how consumed he is by just taking vengeance on orcs. Um, because he because you know, he's got a purpose, right? If she yes. is sort of wandering around wondering what am I gonna do with my life, he's not, right? He's 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 he, he's made a career choice. Right? He's settled in. He's got an objective, he has drive and purpose. Um she doesn't have drive and purpose, but she sees his drive and purpose and his really uncomfortable about it. Um, Hakan is saying it would be nice if Arwen realizes that she has a purpose in Middle-earth and doesn't know what that is, but accepts that she doesn't yet know what it is. Um, that's a really interesting place to think about trying to take her by the end, Hakan. Um, because I agree, there, there has to be, I think, sort of two different layers of recognition by Arwen. On the one hand, for her to recognize... That, if not the purpose of elves in general, certainly her own purpose, is Middle Earth. That she has something to do here. But then the question is, in the second half of the season, what kind of thing is that? You know, and to have her ending up by saying, you know, I don't know yet. You know, I I, I recognize that I have a purpose and that I will, I will and that it will come. That I will that I will, uh, you know, so that she's sort of ready for it. It's another thing you know, Hakan, that I think um, one of the consequences of this, the line that Arwen delivers in, in Appendix A after she meets Aragorn, it's easy for that to sound. I don't mean that it actually is this way in in, in Tolkien's writing, but it, it could sound flippant, right? Um, you know, when, she, when he says, I thought you were Luthien, and she says, I get that a lot, and then um, she says... Um, You know, I am not her, but maybe my destiny will be not unlike hers. Um, Even the way that she asks that as a question kind of makes it sound like, what the heck? You know, I I get, do you see what I mean? Like, she does, her words don't necessarily convey, like, this is a massive turning point. That is a huge, that is, that is a huge, it it just seems awful sudden, right? She just met this guy. And he's done nothing other than be like, oh, I kind of thought you were Luthien. And she's like, oh, uh, I, I could be, I guess. Maybe we'll do that. Why not? Do that? You know, if we show her really with a sense of, like, I have a purpose and I know that my purpose will come. So then when she meets Aragorn, we at least are prepared for it. And we see her being prepared for the fact that, like, OK, this calling that she's been waiting for, um, you know, her calling has come and she recognizes it and she, she recognizes it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um. Tom Hillman is pointing out that Elodon does get the quote. Um, he is the one who is cited as saying, yes, the dead ride behind. They have been summoned, uh, when they're going to the stone of Erech. And Tom, I can easily see, uh, like Elodon being all about the recruiting of the dead guys. Right. He could just love that. Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 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 it would be, it would actually, that would actually be a really interesting moment. In fact, it could even be a kind of turning point. In fact, we could even make the battle of Pelargir and the dismissal of the spirits afterwards to be, uh, um, uh, to be, uh, like the, the sort of the crisis point for like when they, like, when his brother has to stage the intervention, <laughs> basically. Um, now, Marie thinks that Eldon should already have come back from the brink by then. Maybe. We'll have to see if we can work it into the frames or not, Marie. But uh, but I don't know. I kind of like it. And Tom, oh, and Tom is absolutely right. Whatever episode that is, you know, episode whatever of season 18 or whatever, you're absolutely right that the episode, uh, that, that episode has to be titled Bring Out the Dead, clearly, clearly. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, But anyway, okay, okay. Um, Have we gotten any further? By the way,
0: by the way, uh, uh, are we, um, will we, do you think, will we have any seasons of the Silmarillion that will be contemporaneous, not contemporaneous, but where the frame will be set during events of the Lord of the Rings? It'd be pretty cool if we had, like, a whole season of Summerillian where the frame was the Grey Company riding along to go to <laughs> Gondor and telling stories to each other.
1: I would like
3: it. I would think it'd be more like Rosie Cotton and Mrs. Maggot, you know.
0: Wonder <laughs> where the boys are now. <laughs> that would be good, too. But, I mean, basically, I'm just shoehorning this in because I really – I mean, that's one of those stories that Tolkien never tells that just seems like it must be really fascinating. Like, what did the – that ride from um, that ride from the north all the way down to the the entrance to the paths of the dead like that couldn't have been uneventful right,
1: right. like well, they exactly.
0: didn't just like that wasn't like a hobbit walking party those guys must have gotten up to some some uh, some
3: well lotro certainly filled in the gaps in yeah. their own way exactly yeah lotro does a <laughs> yeah. lot with that
1: but yeah no there's there's a lot of uh, there's certainly a lot of time for storytelling no question um, that is a really interesting premise. I mean, I think if you think about Lord of the Rings era, like you know, stuff, that's definitely a, a moment when it could happen. Um, you know, uh, what would be like another interesting moment for storytelling? Any,
0: any character development that we could do for Halbrand is just like, oh yeah, is is like icing on the cake.
1: Absolutely, I, I think Halbarad needs to be a needs to be a a, a frame character in season three. Um yeah. I think that Aragorn and Halberad need to be friends from like when they were teenagers. I know that Aragorn is gonna really be older than he is, but I don't care. I wanna make them I, I, I wanna make them like childhood friends. Totally. Um but anyhow, uh I yeah I so I just no see now Dave you're like totally distracting me because now I just got this image <laughs> of wouldn't it be cool to have some of the people who are gathered for the council of elrond telling like being the frame right just prior to frodo's arrival Ooh. like in the days before frodo comes you know so we've got like bilbo glowin you know other other you know like gandalf is there um, you know while they're waiting for them to come in that would be that would be really interesting of course like the the hobbits right frodo sam merry and pippin and bilbo in Rivendell while they're waiting to depart, right? That's another obvious, uh, another obvious, uh, um, link, you know, another, another wonderful storytelling moment. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we can definitely think about that. We'll see, you know, I, I think, as I recall, we've got the frame mapped out through season five. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we can, um, but there's still plenty of, uh, plenty of frame to come. Uh Anyway, um okay, okay, so
0: so we're adding a story a, sort of a dark turn story arc for a breaking bad story arc for
1: Eladon. <laughs> exactly. Um Are we any further on the Arwin overall Arwin plot? <laughs>
0: That're <Not really. laughs> We've decided what uh, what people around her are going to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. Um, yeah, I, I, have depre- I have a depressing feeling that we're not okay. But we know where we want her to be at the end, right? So let's let let's return to that because I I think we do know something there, right?
3: One of the things I wanted to ask um, is, uh oh. Uh oh! Dog has squeaky toy. Dog has squeaky toy. I hear. I hear the
1: background.
3: <laughs> and now he's gonna get all ticked off because I took it away from him. Um, we talked earlier before we started on the frame about the the significance of the trees, you know, destruction and how we really need to get that across to audience. You know, the audience. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, gosh, you know, are we doing that? Could Arwyn? Could something in the frame also help us with that? I mean, Arwen... Was not alive when the trees were in in existence. I mean, she may not. She's only known the sun and the moon. She may not really understand. So there may be an element of the frame, you know, and also to kind of get away from this. Gosh, we don't want our 13 episodes to be, you know, having Ajita over the elves and Middle Earth issue. Mm-hmm. Um, is there some way we can have, you know, in the frame not a huge amount of it, but something that really does underscore, so that when the trees do are destroyed. You know, that's just an added piece of the, uh, for the audience to really get the gravity. Yeah. I hope that's not. Well, and, I hope and, I didn't just make a pun.
1: No, no I, I agree. I agree. And and uh, and, Goadro obviously is the instrument of that.
3: Right. 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 She's oh. just. Yeah, because. Uh, let's see. Uh, no, because, yeah, you're right. Uh, Celebrant won't have seen him either. That's right.
1: Because, of course, this is the thing. The kind of. And again, this is another one of those things, which is actually kind of a little a little Tolkienian motif, right, and that is you never really do understand the significance of something until after you've lost it, right um, The trees of Valinor are really great, and they're really important, and they're they're central to the entire thing. But would the Noldor, while they were living in Valinor, have really even themselves thought that way and appreciated true. that? You know, it's only after the trees are gone that now everybody, you know. So, oh, like for instance, Turgon makes the replicas of the trees right out of gold and silver in Gondolin. Had the trees not been destroyed, would he have done that? I'm not sure he would. Maybe, That's a good but question. probably not. You know. Um, so, uh, um. Anyway. Yeah, I, uh, uh, um, yeah, yeah, um, so therefore it makes sense rather than saying we need to make sure we work lots of extra reverence of the trees into the first age frame itself. The proper place for that in a sense is the frame. Right. Because it's only Galadriel looking back on the trees in retrospect who is going to have the proper tone of, you know, wonder and respect and longing for them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the people who are like sitting around under them on a daily basis are not just not going to have that 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 perspective. So I agree. That's definitely something something that we can touch on. When should we do that, by the way? When in the season should we have the big Galadriel eulogy on the trees? Because it's gonna be, it's gonna be foreshadowing. Um, uh, um, it's it it's gonna be foreshadowing of the um, uh, of the death. So you know, of the destruction of the tree. So we gotta be careful about it. Like you know, we don't want to totally give away what happens in episode thirteen. Episode thirteen should still kind of um, should still kind of come as a shock to some extent. Um, but it doesn't have to be a, a complete surprise either.
3: Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I mean, Galadro can talk in a way that doesn't, I mean, we don't know how, you know, we know something's happened, but we don't know what and we don't know how, Okay. right? So I suppose, okay. would it be as early as the actual establishment of the trees? I don't know, that might be too early.
1: Well, I mean, well, of course, the birth of the trees is in season one, but the-, the... Oh, that's true we could have it as a transitional moment into, uh, into the second half of the season. Like the noontide of Valinor moment. In, like, episode seven or eight, whenever that was. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, good. M- Marie points out, of course, she can miss them and talk about talk about them with longing without the audience necessarily knowing that they're actually going to be destroyed. Um, when she talks about them, it could sound like the, uh, the longing of an exile, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because she's not in Valinor anymore and remembers it. And it's only later on that we learn. No, no, no. It was. It was not just that Galadriel lost the trees. The trees are actually gone. Um, so yeah.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's true. I. I kind of like this idea. I, I like this idea. Um, that. Um, that I think Marie's getting at that, like, you're in Lothlorien. You've got lots and lots of trees. You know, Malorn trees and things. that kind of. That, to, to kind of spark conversation. Um, Gladriel, because she's in exile, can talk about missing. She can talk about sort of that missingness or that longingness, um, you know, in a in a credible way, since she was a, you know directly experienced and witnessed the trees in person, um, and then was and then was exiled. So she can talk about it in a credible way without, with you know, while still allowing us to bury the lead without giving away the fact that the trees are actually destroyed.
3: Yeah, right. I think that's a really good point.
0: Right. Yeah. This this could work really really it, well. It could,
3: it could appear it, to be more about Galadriel's not being in Valinor anymore than the fact yeah, that the trees don't right. exist anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah it, it can be unclear whether she's talking about the trees being gone or her being gone from Valinor. In some sense, in some sense, the 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 experience of losing the trees and missing the trees is actually very, in a lot of ways, is very similar to the experience of being exiled from uh, uh, Valinor,
1: isn't it? Yeah. Right. Right. Like a,
0: sort of parallel losses right (coughs) right cool
1: Um, yeah now what do you guys think about the general questions is something that has come up a lot on the discussion boards and people have been talking about this idea a lot what do you think about the um, uh, the idea of having Arwen go out on a field trip to have her leave Lothlorien and and go out and, and have a few frame episodes in which she's actually encountering people in the outside world I think I like the idea. I think I like the idea because um, if she's really going to wrestle with this idea, I mean, to some extent, you could say, as long as she's still sitting around in Lothlorien, the whole question of, like, am I called, is is my purpose to be involved in Middle-earth in some way is still a purely theoretical question, right? I mean, she still is sheltered. Um, But uh, so you know, it would be it would be interesting to um, to kind of take her out of that sheltering environment. It would seem like a if she's really gonna make a choice or like a, be prepared for a choice, come to some kind of realization. Um, you'd think that she would have to actually experience it. Maybe she goes out with her brother, or one of her brothers, or both of her brothers. You know, maybe she's talking with them about the question of like engagement with Middle Middle Earth. And they're like, "Well, you know, come see." Um, Maybe we have her go out on her own. I don't know. Now, the 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 one of the main suggestions, um, I think it was—I don't remember if it was Marie or Phil uh, who was talking about this. But I think it was—I think it was Phil. Um, Phil was going through the Tale of Years and noticing that the one. One thing that seems to be going on in the world outside at around this time, and in that area, is that this is this, this, this would be around the time when Gollum had emerged, and was kind of skulking around, looking for the so like the you know the stories that Gandalf tells about uh, you know Gollum stealing cradle, uh, babies out of cradles and that kind of thing, uh, you know in, uh, in in the greater Mirkwood area is around now. Um, so that was one suggestion from the discussion boards of a thing that she could do if there's like not just wanting to wander randomly around but want to go out and engage like to to engage with and help to alleviate the sufferings of people in Middle Earth one thing that she could do which would be geographically and chronologically convenient would be to go outside of Lothlorien go with like you know sort of like the woodman along the edge of, of Mirkwood and hear rumors of like this new terror that haunts the night you know, there in Mirkwood and which would have grown into like legendary stature probably right among the people. Cause it's this mysterious, I mean, we know what it really is and who it really is, but they don't. Um, so it would seem like some kind of mysterious thing. Yeah, I was Phil's suggestion. Um, so that's like a thing, you know, a, 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 a an element from the stories that she could actually, that would be plausible for her to encounter and kind of deal with. My biggest problem with this is I feel like if we send her on an actual adventure, you know, if we give her an actual quest or plot to do, it becomes a real distraction from the main... It ceases to be framish, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I feel like if it's... Uh, you know, we don't want to have, like, four or five episodes in which we have the continuing adventures of Arwen, you know? Not to mention the fact that she can't resolve the the issue. As long as she can catch Gollum, what's she going to do, Right? Um so uh <laughs> Hakan says that uh, Gollum's activities would probably make Elodon want to go kill orcs i i I agree he probably probably would um, uh, <laughs> but um Ruth is asking sensibly, like is she a healer like her dad is? I mean, she could just go to help heal people, uh you know, just to, to sort of just going not going to like. I'm going to come and troubleshoot your problem, uh, uh, but but rather that she's going to come in and, and, and help to, you know, to, to, to bring healing where there is suffering.
0: Shouldn't she, um, shouldn't she, should she, she, be practicing like her wilderness survival skills, her stealth and her swordplay, so that she can catch Aragorn unawares in the wild?
1: Right. Exactly. She does have to practice those things. Yeah. Her horsemanship.
0: Yeah.
3: Yes. Right. Her writing, I was going to say the writing, yeah. you know, yes. helped help with her leather. Yeah.
0: yeah.
3: For her And, and also, the, she has to practice the thing she has to say to the river to make it do yes, its exactly.
1: thing. Yes, exactly. That's true. Yes. <laughs> yes. We could see her practicing on small bodies of water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on puddles.
3: <laughs> Itty bitty horses.
1: Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. We're getting punchy now, folks. Sorry okay, about we that. Are getting right. punchy. Okay, anyway. So, <laughs> so, so no, but um, I don't I mean, having her go out and like helping the suffering, you know, going out and being a healer, that is something that's the, that's a kind of adventure she could have that would still be framey, you know? Yeah. Um, seeing her going out and, and like tending and helping people who are. In sorrow and in and in, in both in physical and emotional suffering, um, that's um, uh, that's definitely something that that we could show her doing, and it would accomplish the large. You know, we could then in the next frame episode bring her back to Lothlorien, and it would give us a sense to show like this is where like we can see some kind of change, we can see some kind of progress in her character, her thinking about what it means to be engaged with Middle-earth, what, 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 what it means to have your purpose be here and, and uh, not just to hang out in the Elvish Oasis all the time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I really don't... I, I, I really do think that we, ha- we we need to resist all temptation to make Arwen warlike. I, I really... I don't think we go there. Occur. And the number one reason I don't want to go there is that it... You know, of course, the whole story about Peter Jackson wanting to bring Arwen to Helm's Deep and stuff. My primary objection to that development of Arwen's character is totally independent of how it changes the story or whatever, anything like that. My biggest objection to it is that it buys into the fundamental idea that the only way to be awesome is to be physically powerful and to be a warrior. Um,
3: Ooh, this kind of sets the stage for Arwen's exactly, thing way later, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. This,
1: this is the argument I always make with people who say like, oh, Arwen's end is so lame, you know, like in the end she just like goes back to the kitchen and she ceases to be awesome. Um, and she, like, subsides from being this awesome feminist character and becomes, like, a docile 1950s housewife, if that's your reading of Eowyn's marriage to Faramir, you have completely missed the point. Totally missed the point. She is moving forward, not back, when she decides she's going to no longer be a shield maiden and is going to become a healer. That's development. Um, That's becoming more awesome, not less awesome. Um, Right. And the idea that, like... In order for a female character to be awesome, she has to be like a like a girl power warrior. Is belittling. It's not enhancing. It's belittling the whole idea. Um, and uh, I, I'm not to say that we don't have any female warriors. There are female warriors, and there can be women who are very competent, uh, uh, you know, in combat, but we cannot give in to the idea that that's what defines awesomeness. Um, And Arwen's awesomeness, I think, must be of a very different kind. mm -hmm. Um. So, yes. And as Corita points out, if we show her healing, it also kind of telegraphs that she and Aragorn are a pretty good match. I agree, you know, to to sort of of show that that, um, uh, sort of synergy there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, okay. Um, uh, so I'm fine with that. I don't even know that we need to get into the detail of like the Gollum thing. I mean, you know, maybe we give that kind of dialogue. Maybe that's just kind of an Easter egg, right? You know, maybe it's with people complaining. Because if you think about it, it actually does kind of dovetail sort of well. Like if, what, if, if the scene we see is of her comforting a young woman whose baby has been taken by Gollum, right? And the woman is just like, you know, all of a sudden my baby wasn't like something, some evil thing just like crept in the window and snatched my baby, right? I, again, we have like a parallel on yet a different scale of what happened to Calibrian and what happened to the elves at Quivianen, right? The idea that evil can just kind of come in at any time and 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 this kind of thing happens, we see this, inex you know, this to them, this inexplicable, uh, evil sweep in and, and create suffering. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that does dovetail with some of the other things and seeing her deal with that and helping, and helping somebody else deal with that seems to be, seems to be a pretty good, a pretty good movement. Um, now, now, Mike is asking a, a good question. He says, how does she interact with the woodman, then? Does she come off as naive or unworldly? Um, is, she, d- it, d- is she competent and leaderly? Great questions. Great questions. How would we see her coming off to them and acting towards them? I wouldn't want to show her as being naive and unworldly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think, because remember, like we know, though Arwen does not know, that the calling that she is being groomed for is to be queen of the world, essentially. <laughs> right. Her goal, her destiny, is to be queen of the northwest of Middle Earth. So, um, and that really, that is a position of. Leadership, but also, but also service. I mean, again, think of Aragorn and Aragorn's kingship, right? And his, you know, the the the, the connection between his kingship and his and his service of others in the houses of the Healing, right? Um, that's kind of how I envision Arwen's career. So I, I mean, I like that Healing connection for that reason, certainly. Um, but, uh, um, but anyway. Um, Therefore, I would want the kind, that kind of sort of servant leadership thing, to be the thing that really emerges from her. Um, not for, for it to be a learning experience for her, but not one where she shows up as being naive and dumb and is taught a lesson by the woodman and then profits from it afterwards. But that this is the experience, this is the opportunity for her and possibly... Conceivably, the first opportunity she's ever had to actually step forward and serve others, and therefore take this kind of caretaker leader role. Um, so we could see her Ooh. sort of, you know, sort of blossoming in that role. They might not, she might have to win their trust. They might not trust her at first. I would think they wouldn't trust her at first, but they'd be uncomfortable with the elves. They can't have seen too many elves, though they live near them, so they'd know of them. Uh, hmm. um, and again, we don't. It's, We don't need or necessarily want a whole lot of dialogue. I mean, the frame bits are are short. So their distrust, her winning over their distrust. We can show her being kind of shocked and appalled. We can show her being kind of stunned at the lives they lead and the suffering that they have. You know, she has the suffering of, you know, what happened to her mom. But then she sees, in a sense, this is a daily reality. Right? This is a thing that happened to her once in a in, 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 in a millennium. This is this is the daily life of these, you know, humans there in Middle Earth. Um Yeah, how can I agree? I'm I'm more I was my first thought was that her brothers take her out on the field trip, but I agree. I kind of think that she should be on her own for this. I no longer want her brothers with her. Besides, they wouldn't stick around because there are no orcs to be killed here. Or they could go, and then the or- the, the brothers could go hunting orcs while she stays uh, uh, with them. But I would be fine with her with her sticking around. This has been a funny discussion because, on the one hand, I feel this whole the whole thing coming much clearer in my mind, but I am not sure. But at the same time, I don't feel like... If somebody really pressed me to say, what have we accomplished in this episode, it would be a little bit harder for me to uh, justify it. You know what I mean? Right. At the beginning... So I'm, I'm trying to like think of ways to summarize this. What is the arc of Arwen's character? At the beginning, she is uncertain about she's uncertain about her own personal purpose in life and it's connected with the larger question of she's uncertain about the purpose of elves. We see her questioning and this is again where we get back to that sort of quasi teenager thing. We see her questioning the whole elvish approach to things. Um why are we here instead of Valinor? Why do we leave here to go to Valinor? Why while here do we isolate ourselves the way that we do? the way that we tend to do. Certainly the elves that she does do. Um, and seeing her wrestle with that. And so some of the things that we talked about at the beginning of the season, her conversations with Celeborn, her conversations with Galadriel. Um, I think, uh, um, you know, we can see her kind of working through some of these things in conjunction with this, this theme of purpose and calling that we get in the first half of the season. Right. Um, And Dave, coming back to the suggestion that you made before, maybe she is kind of inclined. Maybe instead of having, you know, Dave, you were suggesting maybe we have her gung-ho for Valinor at the beginning and then kind of won over. Right. Um, Maybe instead of having her sort of naively gung-ho for Valinor, maybe where we have her at the beginning is she has always kind of accepted gung-ho for Valinor as sort of a default framework, right? Right. And she's and the the sort of the precipitating event of the beginning of the season is just her her beginning to question that. Right. Her saying, well hang on, but you know it's and and so she's she's sort of questioning the whole Elvish perspective and the whole the whole Elvish question. Um, and then we see and then so, so we do see over the course of the season her growing sense of calling and purpose for Middle Earth. So she doesn't start with that. But she ends up there from a, I haven't really thought it through or worked it out yet, but I have a default assumption that Valinor is where else, you know, that, that, that Tolressia is Elvenholm, right? And that's where we're supposed to go. Um, from that initial, but so rather unexamined position, we see her, right. um, here going on. And, and yeah, so Hakan, the, the idea of her friend leaving, we talked about that, her having a friend who's departing for Valinor. Um, yeah, Hakan, that that could be the, 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 the direct precipitating event, the thing that starts her thinking and starts her asking these questions. You know, confronted with the reality of somebody that she knows, you know, other than her mom in the special circumstances of her mother's case, um, deciding to just pack up and go to Valinor. Now she's really, she really has to confront the question. So we see her coming to grips with her purpose and her purpose is to stay in Middle-earth. But then the second half of the season is she has to come to grips with what that is and what that means and what the implications are. Right? Middle-earth right. is messy. Middle-earth is dangerous. Um, and and there's, you know, so they're surrounded by darkness and you can't just hide from it. You have to go out into it. Right? And you have to... And, and, and okay, that's what it means, Deva calling to Middle-earth. She could even be implicitly critical of... Kelleborn and Galadriel, mm-hmm. right? To basically, because you can, you can easily argue that that uh, that Lothlorien and even Rivendell are kind of like the halfway house. You are neither going to Valinor nor are you engaging with Middle Earth. Now, Galadriel can counter that. And this is where we could come to, and I still really like the idea that, uh, um, that Phil had um, when he was pointing out how the the, um, the battle of the field of Celebrant with Aerol the Young happened in the same year that Coebrian left Middle-earth. Um, and I, I thought it was a really interesting insight on Phil's part that it shows that, because of course, according to Unfinished Tales, we know that Goadriel was heavily involved in that. Goadriel shields the Rohirrim as they are riding south, or the soon-to-be Rohirrim, as they are riding south. Um, so she stays and is engaged in that. She she helps to turn the tide. She plays an instrumental role in the turning of the tide of this battle, which ends up preserving the kingdom of, Gon- of Gondor and establishing the kingdom of Rohan. Mm-hmm. In at the same time, when like basically that's what she's doing, instead of seeing her daughter off on the boat, you know, instead of right. focusing on her daughter going to Valinor, she stays home and helps out Errol the Young instead. Um, so we could, and, and, and so Phil's idea was to show that as a sacrifice. Right, that 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 Goadriel has engaged and she does engage with what's going on in the rest of Middle Earth, and we can have that. I mean, so she can have that conversation with Goadriel, and Goadriel say, It may look like I'm sitting here doing nothing, but I'm not sitting here doing nothing. Right. Meanwhile, Kellogg would start looking sheepish because he is in fact sitting there doing nothing. Right. <laughs> uh, poor guy. And, you know, so he's just kind of looking embarrassed and uncomfortable during that conversation. But I'm I'm just kidding. Kind of. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. You should do a lot
3: of, a lot of coughing.
1: Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, a yeah. We, totally, you shouldn't just sit around and do nothing. I'm completely <laughs> engaged with everything that's going on here. Um, I have a long resume of accomplishments, uh, personally. Uh, but anyway, um, so that shape of it, that, 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 Mary, that shape it. seems to work for me. Sorry, go ahead.
0: I was just saying, he has a long list of, of accomplishments, including marrying Gladriel.
1: That's right. That's the number That's one right. item on his resume. And That's there are right. many other things after that, but there are so many things we don't have time to talk about them right now. It just
3: shows how smart he is, right? To <laughs> exactly. marry right. Yeah. yeah.
1: He married well. He married well. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, um, yeah. Good. And Hakan, I agree. By the end of the season, Arwen should be in harmony. With Galadriel, I I I am not just wanting to create, but I think that there could be tension between them. There could be where she she um, having come around to the Middle Earth perspective, she's then because again, and that connects with the fall, right? Um, is it just arrogance on Galadriel and Kelleborn's part, right? Um, you know, are they shutting themselves away? Are they you know are they are they you know they're different like from Fëanor, but are they? Uh, um, uh, are they uh, are they actually are they actually better? You know. So um, anyway, yeah. No, I, I, I think I think that, that that overall that overall shape could work. Um, she could have this reaction after she returns home from helping the woodman, right? Because I mean, again, that's kind of a thing which would seem like an indictment of Guadru and Caliborn, right? Hey there, guy. Did you know that there are people suffering very badly, like you know, just a few miles away from here? Right, it's like, did you even know that there are people right on your doorstep suffering and dying? Um, do you ever like think maybe you ought to do something about that? Those are very sensible questions, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. You know, I, I I I think we've got a shape. So wait, so okay, uh, Mike is asking wonderful probing questions here. So Mike now says, so which episode gets gets the Woodsman field trip frame? Good question. Woodsman
0: Woodsman field trip.
1: The Woodsman field trip is in the second half of the season, so it's got to be one of the Valnorian ones. Hmm. Hmm. Marie suggests episode eight, which is Melkor's trial. All right. There's definitely a poignancy to that, Marie, right? Um, because you could what's say, the, right, the, that like... What's the rationale for that? Well, because the... The well, my rationale would be the episode <clears throat> is about the question of releasing, you know, they're like going to release Melkor back into the world, right? And, and it, the, as the, they're deliberating that, and Arwen is kind of like seeing the consequences of, you know, evil there in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, It makes sense timing-wise, too. Um, That is to say, once she has... If at the end of the first half of the season, when the elves get to Valinor, if by that time she has come to the conclusion, okay, yes, like, Middle-earth, I'm called to stay in Middle-earth, you'd think that pretty soon after that her next move would be to, like, uh, okay, if I'm called to Middle-earth, why don't I, like, introduce myself to it? Right? I don't really know anything about it. Um... So her going out on the field trip fairly you know, early in the second half of the season certainly makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I like eight. I like eight. That makes sense. It seems to work. Um, and then notice that the tension between Arwen and Goadrio and Celeborn would parallel the tension among the... No- what if, what if, like Arwen denouncing Goadriel, is the frame for the episode in which Feanor draws his sword on Vingolfin? I don't want to push the parallel too far, obviously, but the the fact that we have, if we have. Tension between Arwen and Galadriel that it, that gets reconciled by the end. Of course, the you know, the the fact that we're having increasing tension amongst the, you know, amongst the elves over there in Valinor obviously makes a makes a certain kind of sense. It's, it's sort of an obvious uh, parallel that it invites. Okay, okay, I like it. I like it. Um. Uh, now Hakan is going to suggest, of course, that uh, the resolution the resolution to the tension should be uh, a trip to the mirror. It's an interesting idea. Huh. We, we were talking about the mirror and how to involve Goadriel's mirror uh-huh. earlier on. If Goadriel shows her things in the mirror that give her more insight. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Um, cool. Cool. Well, we said we'd talk about the bad guy subplot, too, and I want do want to make sure that we do talk about that some, because we, 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 we worked that out to some extent much earlier in the season, but we haven't returned to it. And I want to make sure that we have a good sense of this subplot. How often we want to come back to it. How much we really need to accomplish, and um, and where we would, you know, again, not episode by episode. How do we how do we put it in? But just to make sure that we have a clear sense of the shape of that subplot. Um, we are wanting to establish the main point that we were talking about before was that the bad guy subplot has to show the continued fall. Of Sauron. He had his turning point. He had his decision moment at the end of season one. In the climax of season one, Myron decides he's going to to change his allegiance to Melkor. But as we described at the time, that does not turn him suddenly, it does not transform him suddenly into an evil creature. Um, so we need to, sh- and this is where we were talking about the 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 secret necromantic orc project um, that that is the thing it it is his competition with Gothmog his his pride his unwillingness to serve the crude thug Gothmog which then pushes him to with his along with his uh, scrappy underdog group of allies uh, Thuringwethil Tevildo, the cat and uh, uh, and oh yeah Drugluin the, the werewolf. Right. Um, so those uh, uh, those 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 four, uh, you know, with their complementary uh, uh, palette of superpowers uh, band together in order to try to uh, to to overcome the. Um, I'm deliberately being silly and exaggerating this. I hope that no one is shrieking in horror at my idea of actually <laughs> um, But 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 you'll remember we talked about this. They they are his allies, right? They they decide to work with him, with him, and and we have uh, Gothmog, who is just a brute, right? Who is who is who is uh, um, uh, brute force? <laughs> Corita says, a dog, a cat, a bat, and a redhead walk into a stronghold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yes. Um, so. OK. So what's the shape of their story? How do we how do we present this? We, we, the concepts we worked out before. But it's the shape of it that I wanted to come back to and make sure that we get. And then thinking about that shape in the context of the shape of the overall season. That's really the thing that I wanted to touch on, if those things make sense. Um, what is the what is the shape of Sauron's story? Do we have his name changed in this episode? We talked about that before, didn't we? What, what, what do we decide about that? Do we decide to have him... Because he's given the name Sauron... You know, uh, because of the horrible things that he does. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, we did talk about this. Who gives him the name? Oh, didn't we say Gothmog gives him the name?
1: Yeah. We had Out of kind of like a nasty
3: sort of like, you know, vindictive competitive.
1: Yes. 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 Gothmog gives him the name as an insult and uses yeah. it throughout season two. Um, right. Uh, Mike ex- asks a great question. Do we want the audience to actively root for Myron at all to overtake the Balrogs? Hmm.
0: Well, it's it's sort of inevitable that the audience is going to probably pick a side. Right?
1: And it, so it seems unlikely the, that they're going to pick the side of the big bully.
0: the Balrogs, Yeah. I mean, you know, usually you'll sympathize, even when a character's known to be evil. If he's at least sort of clever and effective, <laughs> people might people will probably sympathize with that more. I don't know, and that, and I kind of think Myron's Myron ugh, remind me. Do people are are sort of is your average viewer aware that this is Sauron?
1: Well, not until we give him the name.
0: Okay, so so honestly, yeah, sure. They should sympathize with Myron. That would be ironic.
3: They'd be like, "Oh, whoa! Wait a minute!"
0: Well, yeah. and it it gives him a, it gives him more of an arc if he's even a, even if even in his early days if he seems like sort of the lesser of two evils, it makes him more sympathetic. So it means sort of wherever where he ends up later, it gives him a trajectory. Right? Like he has, he, he his fall's not complete. Right. Like. Right. That there's still sort of a still a possible defense to be made, or an argument to be made in his defense right now. That like, oh, he's um, he's trying to work from the inside,
1: right? You know? Well, and we see him go deeper and deeper. Um, yeah, in his response to Gothmog, right? Um, <coughs> and we see him being driven by the desire. For power, I mean, it can kind of look like self-preservation. You know, it can kind of—it doesn't have to look like I must dominate the wills of as many people as possible because I like it and I'm evil. Like, it doesn't have to look like that, right? It could just—I mean, he's—he's he's being marginalized. He's being—I mean, again, he's being bullied, right? Um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah. Oh man. Okay, so Marie says that like. Some jerk decided that Gothmog would give Myron the name Sauron at the end of season one so that the viewer is not in the dark if this is Sauron. I don't know whose boneheaded idea that was, Marie. Um, she says well, it's mine, yep. but uh, uh, yeah, I'm afraid it was. Well... We can
0: always retcon that.
1: Yeah, let's retcon that. Should we? <laughs> Do I, but, well, let's... Here's the question. If the moment of his turning to Melkor is not the moment when the reveal comes that he is Sauron, when should it be? I don't know. You know, and, and
0: I'm, thinking, I'm thinking at least sort of in terms of the current discussion, which is, hey, we want the viewers to sort of sympathize with this guy. I don't think the knowledge, the foreknowledge that this guy turns out to be Sauron, the big bad of Lord of the Rings, precludes that, right? Right. Because, because people are, because uh, they're going to be they're going to be swayed by his portrayal in this story, and in this story, he's going to seem like a, the better choice, right, uh, against the power rocks,
1: right. And you know that could even be his reasoning. I'm the lesser of two evils. <laughs> right. not, not that yeah. he would think that way, but that could be, you know, more like the way that, uh, the, um, more like the way that, uh, the audience views him, you know? Um, not that they think he's great, but that he's obviously better. He's obviously preferable to Gothmog. Um, yeah. Yeah. um, well, I mean, basically, I, I don't think we're talking about an inferior effect for the audience and a, and, a, and a superior effect. On the one hand, if we reveal his name, then they know all along. If we wait, then we give the people, we give some of the viewers the experience of like, oh man, that was Sauron all along, right? That's a different kind of experience, but it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily better. I mean, it's 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 more. Dramatic. It's more surprising, you know, to have that moment of recognition when you, um, uh, when you discover. Of course, sometimes that leads to a feeling of betrayal. Like, oh, right, this guy that, um, um, this guy that I have been kind of liking for several seasons turns out to be the Dark Lord on his dark throne, Um, uh, and and that can that some that kind of thing can make people feel betrayed. Actually. yeah. Okay. Fine. 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 I won't second guess myself from last year. We'll we'll have him called Sauron throughout. So he's no longer Myron. He ceases to be Myron when he when he you know changes sides in season one. So he's Sauron all the way through. Fine. Um, and what we seeing it? What we what we see? Remember his motivation. His motivation should not just be. I, I don't want this just to be a simple power struggle. On Gothmog's side, it can be a simple power struggle, right? Um, with Gothmog, it can be as simple as I want to be the boss, and Myron being like, "But I'm not sure that would be what would be for the best." You know, for everything considered, in Gothmog's like, I don't care. I want to be the boss, right? That's uh, that's all he cares about. But um, but Sauron himself can still be trying to be- can still be believing that he's doing what's best. Remember, that was the whole thing with Melkor in the first in the first season, right? It wasn't about like. It- Myron was not self-consciously turning to the dark side. Myron was joining what he felt to be the winning side and the side that was like better to rule by strength than uh, than to be weak, as he saw Manway being weak. Right. He liked he he admired Melkor and agreed with Melkor's leadership style. Right. Um, That's. that was That was a big part of what was behind his conversion in season one. Um, he's still therefore going to be motivated by <clears throat> ruling middle earth. This is the best way to rule middle earth. I can't leave it to that brainless thug, right um, so he doesn't we don't necessarily have to show him being like, "I must amass more power um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I
0: I don't think I like I think his story is more interesting um if he's not a mustache twirling you know right. like villain right. yet like I I I kind you know I kind of like to give in, in since we have since we have a lot of time and space to really fill out his character and to portray his fall. It would be nice if at the end of this series there is something to the empty words or you know or the there's something to all the stuff that he has his messengers running around saying to the people of middle-earth yes. every time he tries to take over right where he yeah. starts talking about like you know hey I just wanna be your f-, you know we're trying to make middle-earth a better place that's and right well you know and that's like, right. I mean, I like in reading the Lord of the rings we kinda of just whenever characters say oh that's just more empty lies from the the uh, messengers of Sauron there's no reason to believe any of that we take that for granted that that's true, right? But it'd be kind of it'd be nice if, if um, you know, uh, um, you know. And there's that line it it, it kind of gets filled out by in in a weird way by Saruman, right? Like, right. You know, there's that line where where Saruman makes his pitch to Gandalf and Gandalf says, yeah. "I've heard I've heard this before from the mouths of the emissaries of Mordor." Um, it, but with, you know, in Saruman's case, because we sort of know a little bit of his back history and we have people continually reminding us, like, oh, he was a good guy once, and yeah, he fell and stuff. Um, so we kind of fill in the gaps a little bit with Sauron. But uh, you know, as far as we're concerned, he, was, he is always the bad guy. It'd be right. nice if we kind of gave him a story where you kind of see, like, he at least began with some kind of good intentions. You know, that
1: exactly. Or at least not even... Not just complete lies. Exactly. Yeah, he believes it. Yeah. right he believes it um he believes that him ruling middle earth is for is is in everybody's best interest <laughs> yeah. you know um that he's the one who should be in charge not be, just because he wants to destroy it because he likes destroying things and killing people um but because he he believes that it's um so he's
3: not there yet is he delighting no. to destroy things and kill people Yeah, i mean no. Actually, I think, as I recall reading somewhere, um, he later in the ages, he's really driven by his just deep, deep, deep hatred of the elves. And
1: that has that hasn't come to pass yet. Well, yeah, he's I mean, we will see him increasingly, um, increasingly fueled by basically petty reasons. Right. Right. Uh, Like I I'm the fall of Numenor was really uncomfortable. Like the, the, the Numenorians wrecked what I was doing. So I'm going to wreck Numenor and uh-huh. then he wrecks Numenor, but like he falls into the abyss and that was a deeply uncomfortable experience. Oops. And then like, Oops. you know, hadn't, here comes. had yeah. accounted for that. Oops. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then Isildur of all the annoying young brats, Isildur shows right. up on his doorstep, built a castle on his mountains for crying out loud. And, uh, you know, thumbing his nose, it's like there's like there's there's Isildur, um, you know, like uh, giving him giving him the moon in a manner of speaking right there on his doorstep. And and he and he's he's ticked off. Right. So he has this vendetta against Gondor is a vendetta against the he's not forgotten the whole Celebrimbor uh, the you know, the exactly. whole war, and even with, before that, right? Yeah. I mean, if, like if Elrond can, and the siege of Rivendell and all that stuff. So I mean, he's uh, so they Karita, keep thwarting
3: him. How dare yeah. they?
1: Yeah, carita In a sense, yes, this descent into pettiness is one of the marks of evil. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. and again, that's that's also one of the things that we echo with with Elodon, right? You know, they're like, dude, killing orcs isn't the way of life, right? That's not you're not, uh, exactly. He, he's sort of becoming like Sauron. Love it. Okay, good. But I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Um, (laughs) Yeah. All of that stuff. So, so yes, as time goes by, we see him essentially becoming lesser and lesser. That's always what the evil creatures do. That's also, that's always what the evil people go. I mean, it's what, that's what falling looks like in Tolkien is to become more and more petty, more and more obsessed, a, a, a littler and littler character. Um,
3: and, and literally too, in terms of spreading the right, power. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your yeah. influence becomes greater, but you personally become less. Right. <clears throat> yes. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, whether you are you are a small, pitiful, withered thing like Gollum, physically right, and spiritually, right? Or with I mean, Gollum and Gollum and, and and Sauron are parallel in that way. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but he's not there yet. He's nowhere near there yet. Um. What if what if the orcs are a mistake? Not I don't mean like oops accidentally perverted the souls of uh, uh elves into oops gosh I really didn't mean to do that. No. What if he is Rather than saying, like, I'm going to capture elves, and then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to torture them and torture them and torture them until they become unrelentingly evil and my slaves to do my will. So you're, uh,
0: saying, you're saying what if it begins with him uh, capturing them and then sitting down and trying to persuade them to
1: join him? And trying to, yeah, change their yeah, minds, improve right. them. I mean, he's, he's, he needs backup, right? You know, I mean, Gothmog's got the muscle and he can see clearly that if Gothmog is into like a, a world, a Middle Earth with Gothmog in charge is just a place of nightmare for everybody. Right. Nobody wants that. That's not in anybody's best interest. That doesn't even fulfill, you know, Melkor's vision of like power and order um, uh, because Gothmog's an idiot. So um, and. And a thug and so a bully. it's
0: it's kind of one of those scenes where he he's snatching elves and dragging them in and and they're and they're like they're like why why have you accosted us and kidnapped us and he's like no I I didn't kidnap Doug. you're you're not you're you're not understanding what I'm trying to do here look <laughs> I just wanted to have a conversation
1: that's right this is a, this is recruitment yeah yeah it's not kidnapping. <laughs>
0: No, uh, no, I really like that idea that it begins as, like, you know, like he's just trying to get these people on his side and he's going to try and, you know, help them, maybe improve them, etc. And they don't cooperate and he doesn't understand why they don't cooperate. And he ends up having to tr- sort of, you know, eventually just resorts to torture.
1: Yeah. Or, or decides that he's going to, I mean, I, I could, I'm, I, I just have this sort of image and I don't know if it would work. Of having initially, Sauron himself, be repelled by the orcs. Yeah, Like, That's not what he meant. That's not, yeah, how, he, not how he how yeah, he thought this, this would come in. Really I was going for. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so like these twisted figures of of like hatred and violence, like violence. Yes, <laughs> like he wanted the violence because he needs soldiers. Right. That's what he's trying to make. He's trying to he's trying to make the, the 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 you know, and I don't want to make this into like a Captain America kind of experiment, you know, where he's trying to make the, you know, the the, the perfect soldier. But there's an element of that involved. Right. Where he's trying to take the 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 elves and like upgrade them. Um, ooh, Karita. Yeah, that's just what I was thinking. Karita says, so he's like Aule, but he hates his new people instead of loving them.
0: Ah uh, yeah, there you
1: go. yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking about, karita um uh Tom Hillman says he kind of it makes him kind of sound like Victor Frankenstein. yes, yes, also kind of like that um now Marie points out that he makes werewolves first, yes, exactly. and again, think about how he makes werewolves, right you've got you've got spirits, you've got lesser spirits, which are joined to the bodies of beasts. That seems like a good idea, right? You need soldiers, right? So you're going to, you're going to, this seems like a, this seems like a sensible upgrade. Um, and he's, is he trying to upgrade elves in the same kind of way? Cause that'd be like the next thing, right? I mean, if, if uh, I mean, think about this as like a, as like a proportion, Right. Think, think about this as like a a, uh, a a a an SAT analogy, in order to try to get at what Sauron was going for in the creation of the of the of the of of the of the orcs. Right. Wolves are to elves what werewolves are to the goal. Right. He made werewolves first. It was awesome. He took animals. Right. Pretty like fierce, strong animals, and he made, he upgraded them, right? By giving them this intelligence, uh, you know, the, uh, and and these other, he made them more powerful and stronger and, and smarter, and now they're awesome, right? What if he takes an elf, which is already strong, intelligent, and awesome, and tries to upgrade it in a similar way, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, that would be awesome. But what he ends up getting is essentially a downgrading from elves, not an upgrading. Yeah.
3: Oh, that's actually a good,
1: yeah. Yeah. That's actually a good idea, Corey. That, wow. You, I know. Don't try to sound so surprised, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Um, he doesn't now, Maria's right that he, we don't necessarily have to get him... We don't, we don't need orcs yet. Like we, right. we, we don't have any jobs for orcs to do on screen yet. By the end of season two. Um, because... We'll get them... We'll get them later. Season three and four. Um... So, yeah, so Maria is suggesting we show the werewolf process in season two and then just kind of hint at what he's going to do with the elves. So maybe we focus on his kidnapping of the elves and trying to bring them over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the initial attempts at persuasion, which don't work.
0: Yeah, and maybe maybe we see. Yeah, so if we show, if we portray what he does with the werewolves sort of clearly, so that the audience understands it, and then we show him gr- recruit, <laughs> recruiting some elves <laughs> and right. putting them through the recruitment process, and then expressing frustration at it, and then saying, "Okay, on the you know Plan B," where Plan B is heav- <laughs> heavily implied to be a variant of what he did with the werewolves.
1: Right. Right. Ah, Marie says or do they resist him? Oh, yeah, maybe
0: persuade okay. some.
1: Yeah. Because of course, in that we have an anticipation of, you know, Anatar of him coming in and trying to persuade the elves.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Different angle, obviously, right? Maybe the init- maybe the first generation orcs are willing participants in the experiment. That goes horribly wrong, and Karita again is absolutely you are you you are totally tracking with me, Karita. Karita is reminded of the Cybermen in Doctor Who, you know, the sort of the, with with this with this upgrading thing, um, exactly, Karita. Yes, just like the Cybermen, except less metal.
0: One thing—the one thing I wonder um, about the uh, the the recruiting of the elves is—and you can probably hear Wally in the background. I, I can, yes. Yeah, that's so cool. I think we'll, 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 since that's the only noise he knows how to make, we'll take that as agreement with this idea. That's good, yes, that's right.
3: <laughs> He's already co-hosting. Uh, <laughs> look at that. One thing I wonder,
0: is it important, you know, is one, one, one sort of important, possibly important story element that we might have if the elves don't go along with him, Yeah, which is an intriguing idea. But the one thing we lose there is sort of the, is the revealing that ultimately Sauron is about domination, right? Like, that, if the elves go along with them, then it's kind of like, you know, well, they did have their own free will and all that. If he tries to persuade them and they don't go along with it, and he does it to them anyway, then we show, um, you know, that this is really what the guy's about underneath. You know, like, that's one thing I wonder. Like, do we, are we, and, you know, maybe we don't want to portray that yet, so maybe having them do it voluntarily is good, yeah. because because it makes him, we don't play our hand on him being, a, you know, a, bit, a really, really bad guy, yes. but, um, but but, but that's just the question, do we want, is that something we want to be an element of this story, that like, you know, when push comes to shove, Myron's a bad guy, he's right. going to bring you in and say nice things to you and try to recruit you into joining his experiment voluntarily, <laughs> but at the end of the day, even if you don't, if you tell him no, he's not going to set you free, he's going to do it to you anyway.
1: Well, yes. I mean, th- in a sense that is the doctrine that he has converted to when he comes over to Melkor's side, right? Yeah. The yeah. the 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 core principle one of the things that differentiates what he perceives as the strong approach versus what he perceived as the weak approach in season 1 right. yeah. is like at the end of the day are you willing to do what you got to do? Right? Um,
0: yeah. Uh, so I'm just wondering if that's if that's an important story element, then then we we can't show him con- convincing the elves, uh, or not all. Well, of
1: them. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Now I, I want to maybe address... the
0: first, maybe the first couple do it voluntarily and it doesn't turn out well, and uh, and so the rest of them say never mind, no thanks. And Sauron or Myron says too late.
1: Right, right. Um, well, I want to address Hakan's objection or, or sort of reminder. Um, you know, he wants, you know, Hakan is insisting, like, of course, we have to remember Morgoth has to be very directly implicated in the Orc process. Like, we can't make the Orc process happen totally independently of Morgoth. I agree, but here's, I think I said something like this earlier on. Um, it came to me now like I was thinking of it for the first time, but I'm pretty sure it's not the first time I've thought of this. I think I thought of something quite similar earlier on, and that is, I think that, when obviously, when, Mor- when Morgoth returns to Middle-earth, he is going to be taking over the orc production process. And when he takes over the orc production process, it's very... things go very differently. Um, and he is the one who... Tur- so I'm thinking... Um, and this is kind of it's the, this this thought is kind of dovetailing with what I was thinking about with uh, the whole upgrade thing, the whole persuasion and upgrade thing. What if this new line of creature, that uh, this new upgraded elf subrace that that Myron is working on, was never intended to be like the mindless, hateful soldiers that orcs end up being. Um. They weren't. Cons- what if his creatures are not consumed by hatred, and anger all the time? Um, what if he is? But they're made into that. By- it's Sauron who comes along and is like, "Okay, but I'm changing the recipe." Right? Good you idea. Mean, I like this. You mean it's? You mean it's? Um, it's or not, Morgoth, it's Morgoth, Morgoth comes along, Yes, c- c- comes along and changes the the recipe. Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Right, but they're not—they're not sufficiently enslaved.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Because, of course, what's the major difference? The major difference is that when Morgoth comes in, he hates the elves. Yes, and
0: yeah, that's a—that's a fair point. Like, like Morgoth. I, I wonder if we. Yeah, I wonder if the independent, the 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 independent operation going on in Middle Earth, is perhaps at least in appearance slightly more benign. And right. it becomes under because Morgoth's going to show up with a whole lot of hate and bad. baggage.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
0: So um, yeah. So maybe maybe the initial process is is still sinister, but appears exactly a little more benign. Sauron um, is
1: in a more uh, slightly sinister utopia kind of direction. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, sinister, like you know, like but you're not quite sure if it's if it's like a dystopia or a utopia kind of thing, he's willing to use force right. and it's kinda of shady and questionable. But but then when Morgoth It's true force
0: is force is nearly always his fallback position.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Right. Yeah, um, I kinda like that. And and sort of and a stage of his corruption will be Morgoth shows up and says, Okay, we're gonna take this in a new direction and Sauron goes along with it. And then right. and then ultimately prefers
1: it. Yeah, Sauron's role as Morgoth's lieutenant is going to be really interesting to flesh out in, in, in future seasons, like what exactly, how does yeah. that work, what, what's his game in the whole thing, you know um, but yeah, yeah um, so his interactions with the elves can be, in that sense, he doesn't, we don't have to show him tormenting elves to make them into orcs, because he doesn't want to make them into orcs he doesn't even want to torment them um, he wants to persuade them, he wants to upgrade them, he wants to he wants to make them his servants, loyal to him, right? That's of course another thing that Morgoth is going to take over. Um, where they, they they they're going to be the orcs are going to be motivated only by fear. Um uh, yeah. Um Karina's on fire. She, she says, Now I'm thinking about the Princess Bride. Morgoth as Prince Humperdinck. <laughs> and Sauron as Count Nugent. Count... Count... Count Rugen. Not to 50! Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's just it. I, Sauron would be the one who would be like, and this is for posterity, so be honest. Um, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. No, I... I like this in general. Um, this... This... Uh, because the real abomination what Sauron is doing is very bad Um, but the real abomination is what Morgoth comes and does to them because what he does he does out of malice both because he wants to make the orcs out of into, I mean it's like the double whammy right? What he does to them he does to them maliciously He, he, he makes them into orcs because he hates them and then having made them into orcs Having inflicted his anger on them by making them into orcs, he then makes them the instruments of his anger against others. So that's just, that's just, you know, whacked all the way through. Whereas with Sauron, it's more of a, like, I have a laudable end, but my means might be a little bit shady. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like it. Like it. Yeah, I don't think we actually want to have Isildur say "You killed my father," prepared to die to uh, to to uh, to Sauron on Mount Doom. That's probably it's probably not how we'll play that line in the end. But um, anyway, okay. I like that. Now Marie was saying, are we okay with uh, basically having the bad guy plot subplot? get pretty much fully developed through the first half of the season and then we leave it behind just as we leave the rest of Middle Earth behind. We're gonna have to come when do we have to come back to any of it? Do we need to see we're gonna have to see Gothmog, right? Gothmog is gonna lead his posse of Balrogs to, to drive Ungoliant away. I kind of feel like if we bring in Gothmog at the end we have to bring in we have to show Sauron at the end too, don't we? We can't show half of the. We can't show like a power struggle between the two of them and then not return to him. So we've got to come back to yep. Sauron in episode 13. What does Sauron do in episode 13? So that we don't have much time for it, right? We can't develop. He's monster. not going
3: to know, right? I mean, he's not. There's no Twitter or, or Facebook for him to know what's happening with Morgoth. That's
1: right. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> Morgoth attacked <laughs> by Ungoliant is trending on Twitter at that time. So he realizes, he, as soon um, as Sarah logs into present? Twitter, he realizes what's going on. Yeah.
3: Will he be present when Morgoth ascends the 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 throne and puts the iron crown on his head?
1: What if we? What if he is? What if he isn't there? What if he? Uh, what if we only have Thorin Gwethil coming and reporting to him? She comes in and tells him, Morgoth has returned.
3: Maybe that's the the scene right before we do the final scene of
1: yeah, the like that sort of his thrugs. final scene. So we don't yet know how he's gonna. You know, so basically, we're setting up the fact that you know he's now going to come in and have. But but we, we we already see you know Morgoth is is walking with the Balrogs. That would set up basically if we. Sh- it's going to be hard to avoid the the perception that in the Balrog-Sauron divide, Morgoth is kind of coming in on the Balrog side.
3: Yeah, because, I mean, Sauron really does honestly stay his lieutenant, right? He doesn't. Yeah. He does. I mean, he... But
1: that doesn't I don't mean think he's we not, should. He's not, it. like, you know, playing his own game, too.
3: But the other side of it could also be more like, Daddy's back, I want to make sure I'm favorite.
0: Well, you know, you in I mean, if he's going to come in and take over, say, the Orc project, it seems, in some sense, he's coming in on Sauron's side.
1: But he's sort of well. And but we can show of, that. I mean, we can show his approval for what Sauron has done, and his yeah. yeah. And Morgoth obviously. But we're not going to do into, that
3: until season three, right? I exactly. It's one of those. Me, exactly. the, it's
1: one, one of the those. The ascension spirit. of the
3: throne is kind of the end, as like a stay tuned for more. Yeah, we much
1: more than a visual image, really. Yeah.
3: That's why I was thinking if we had Sauron in the room when he puts the crown on, and again, an, an actor who does great nonverbal acting, you right. know, could give us a yeah, range yeah. of emotion. Yeah.
0: yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it's sort of a Pyrrhic victory for him, right, in that Morgoth comes back and says, great work. You know, you've done excellent <laughs> work here. Okay, well, I'm taking over everything now. Right. And, and Sauron's doing and, yeah. and it differently.
3: Thanks for holding the fort, buddy. That's right. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Um, exactly. As a reward for your great work, you get to go. You know, is this when he gets sent to the the? I guess they haven't. He hasn't taken the tower, but basically he gets some he kind of like, barrier, he? Yeah. he gets some kind of promotion, which involves being sent someplace. You know, to some like destitute.
3: He, yeah, he gets a promotion in Morgoth's definition, but in Sauron's definition, it's a demotion.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to work Sauron into. Sauron's absence from the Silmarillion—I yeah. mean, the fact that he only really just comes into that one story—is um, yeah. really tantalizing. I can't wait to work Sauron into into more of the Silmarillion stories. You know, just like what, what role he has. Um, I get,
3: because that, he is really the, the big bad. He's the one consistent bad through most of the story. I mean, yeah. most of our story.
1: Most of our story, absolutely. Yeah. That's gonna be that's gonna be a lot of fun. But um, I agree. But yeah, yeah. Um, and we can, I mean, I, well, okay, here I'm, I, I don't want to get too far into fleshing out Sauron in, in, epi- in uh, season three stuff. Um, but I think, I guess we do show him there. Like when we show the throne room and Morgoth with his iron crown, Sauron should be present. Maybe we have, uh, he's on his throne, we have Sauron standing on one side of him and Gothmog standing on the other side. Gothmog slightly forward, like with his arms crossed, looking awful smug. And Sauron mm-hmm. standing back a little, looking more troubled. Mm-hmm. So we see that, you know, it's not like Morgoth is against him. Morgoth clearly accepts him. And maybe even Sauron is standing on his right side. But he's looking much less comfortable. Um, yeah. Yeah, but again, really, we're not going to get much more than a visual image from it. I don't think we should try to give him dialogue. No, I agree. Okay, cool. I mean, so the
3: audience can be left with, gee, I wonder how Sauron's taking this. Right. You know, Right. we sort of see a nonverbal thingy.
1: Yes. Okay, cool. All right. Good. Well, I got to run, but uh, that was great. I think we, I I actually do feel now like we accomplished a little bit something. We got to talk about now next week. Um, and I'm going to spring this on our script people. I want to do two, ep- two sessions where we review, uh, we, we, we go back and we look at the script outlines, because you guys have been doing a lot of work all season long um, on these outlines and things. I want to do two sessions talking about those, and I want to do those next. So first of all, two things. Um, there are two major things that I want to do uh, in the post-production portion of, the, of, the, of, the, of season two. One is I want to go through the script, and the other is, of course, we need to do casting. Um, so as of now, we want to officially open nominations for casting. Post on, go to the discussion forum, post nominees for um, uh, for uh, for casting. Okay. Um, there's
3: uh, a there's a list that Maria's made. It's yes. the second. It's right now the second entry on the board, and she's made a very complete list of season three casting
1: needs. Yes. Yes. Um so uh, please do make nominations um include pictures with your nominations pictures and links are good um and we will have at, at the next episode we will close nominations and we will start the voting uh for um the 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 final votes okay and then in the episode after that we will we'll Right talk and about nominations the final will be
3: decisions. open for a week for just a week, and then we'll have another week to compile the results and, and yes. get prepped for
1: the session. Exactly. So, um, so, 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 two things. So, for next time, first, we're going to be the, the, your your primary homework for next time is to be doing casting nominations. Um, what we're going to do in the next session is I want to talk about I want to talk through the first half, the the, the non valinor You know, the, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do two sessions on the scripts is that it makes sense to divide it into two. Sessions where we'll talk about the the uh, the the Middle Earth half of the season and then the Valinor half of the season. Um, so um, so we'll talk about the pre-Valinor. We'll talk about the Middle Earth half of the season. We'll go through the the now I, I, obviously we're not going to go through all of the outlines point by point. Um, you know, uh, we the execs will have some sort of big picture things to uh, to sort of. Uh, discuss about the you know, the outlines and the stuff that you guys did so we'll be talking about that next time we'll do the, the, the second half of the season after that and then we will um, and then we'll do the, the casting results after that alright um, uh, oh, should Eladon and Oro here be two different actors or identical twins I don't know what do you guys think I mean they're twins but they can be fraternal I think twins. they should be oh, okay.
3: fraternal twins I'm actually thinking of one being blonde, like you know, Gladrill, and the other one dark, like Elrond.
1: Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I think the door's open.
3: You know, make your case for it. I yeah. think, you know, yeah, I mean, if exactly. you want, make a case. You know, make a case for identical versus
1: eternal. That's, that, that's exactly what that's what that's for. So yeah, tell us. Tell, tell us what you think.
0: Please pay special attention to opportunities to re- use CGI to resurrect dead actors and actresses.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, I, am not. Yeah, I, I think that we should totally cast Peter Cushing as somebody. That's obvious. I think now that we see what a fine posthumous actor Peter Cushing is, I think uh, we we clearly have that option open to us. So.
3: Yeah, you know, we have to lift the ban on no dead actors that we put on season <laughs> yeah, one.
1: exactly. Because I think everyone is going to be really interested in in having a constant stream of. CGI dead actors portraying people, yeah. Yeah,
3: really, right. Yeah. yeah. So don't really make the, make the show. <clears throat> okay.
1: Um, okay. Excellent. Excellent. Ooh, Peter Cushing would make an interesting Saruman, Chris. I agree with that. Anyway, sorry. Okay, getting distracted. So <laughs> that's what we're doing for next time. Thanks everybody for joining us, and I look forward to uh, to a few fun post-production episodes, and then it'll be off to season three, which, of course, you can see we could barely restrain ourselves from moving talking about and starting to get into that here today. So uh, look forward to look forward to doing that. Um, so thanks for listening, and Godspeed.